This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anthony Johnston. And today we are talking about the seminal, I say that about all of these, don't I? The seminal Iron Maiden album from 1982, The Number of the Beast, their first with uh, vocalist Bruce Dickinson. And an album that surely almost all of our listeners are more than familiar with, probably more familiar with it than I was before this episode, if I'm perfectly honest with you. <laughs> I wonder if that's the case for me too. And I, I think I was just going to say that in the future, this will be referred to as the Maiden episode. Yeah. Um, because obviously with your theme this year of talking about albums that sort of changed the face of music or were hugely important to uh, to music at the time, there was going to be an Iron Maiden episode you know, during the season. And so I am super excited to talk about this. This was not the album that I always gravitated to of Maiden. And so I did spend a lot more time with it than I had, uh, maybe not ever, but certainly over a short period of time for sure. Yeah, well, and that's the same with me. I've talked about this, you know, I've mentioned this several times on the show and, and in the Facebook group as well. My my favorite studio album from Maiden is actually Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, uh, which when it was released was actually kind of quite divisive in the British anyway, metal community, because it was yeah. the first to use proper keyboards and atmospherics and stuff and was very proggy. Um, and yeah, was, you know, that was very divisive, but I love it. Um, and somebody asked me on the group, you know, said, oh, you've mentioned this before, but like, but why? And it's simply that for me, it has no poor tracks on it. I wouldn't say bad because yeah. I don't think, I don't think Maiden are capable of making a bad track necessarily, but one of the, and I've, you know, again, I've said this many times before, I am not, I like Maiden just fine, but I'm not the biggest fan. You know, I'm sure many people out there are much, much bigger fans of them than me. And one of the issues for me is consistency. Um, yep. You know, almost every album they put out has two or three awesome tracks, but no album has all of their, you know, has complete, like every track's a blinder. Uh, and the, but the closest one for me, closest one that comes to that is Seventh Son. Um, the only track I'm not so keen on in that one is uh, The Prophecy. But even that's pretty good. Uh, and then meanwhile, you've got tracks like Moonchild, Only the Good Die Young, The Evil That Men uh-huh. Do, Seventh Son itself, which are just amazing songs within the Maiden canon. And personally, you know, some of my favorites. So yeah, um, and... As I, again, as I've also said, when if I'm going to listen to any Maiden album, I always gravitate to Live After Death because it's a, effectively a greatest hits album. Correct. Played yep. by one of the best live bands in the world. So yep. the the reproduction of the tracks is amazing. Um, and yeah, that's, and it, that's very much like what my feeling about Maiden is. I mean, I would agree with everything that you just said, except for me, the album that I tend to gravitate toward is Somewhere in Time, because I believe it was the first album that I ever went out and bought of theirs on my own. And that's um, the first album after Live After Death as well, isn't it? It's the only one that none of the tracks aren't, you know, you kind of, you think of them as being around the same time, but there are, Live After Death was recorded on the Power Slave tour, which was before Somewhere in Time. Yeah, well, and you talked about, you know, that that being sort of the album that you like being a controversial pick amongst Maiden fans, somewhere in time, same thing. You know, it's an album that a lot of people don't like. And for me, it is, if someone said, well, what's your favorite Maiden album? I would usually say somewhere in time, because that's the one I have sort of a soft spot in my heart for. And But I agree with you in that my issue with them has always been one of consistency, that as a body of work, I can think of a dozen 
or more, maybe two dozen Maiden songs that are absolutely amazing over the course of their discography. And so I always right, think of them. Right, but they're spread out over like correct. 10, 12 albums, yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, I like Somewhere in Time for what it's worth. That's, you know, that that's up there with, uh, you know, I think a lot of tracks. Again, not every track on the album, but, you know, that has a better hit rate than than many, for me anyway. Um, me too, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> excuse me. But yeah, Live After Death is just such a... I mean, we could almost have talked about that album because that in itself is was such a landmark live album for metal. Um, we haven't done a live album yet, have we? We haven't, no. And if we were going to do one, it probably would have been Live After Death. Um, yeah. You know, but obviously now we're doing this for Maiden. But uh, Live After Death was... And, and so many of the songs... I mean, okay, it was the Power Slave tour, but there's an awful lot of songs on that album from this album, from The Number of the Beast, because this album, and the whole reason that I picked this album, really did change Iron Maiden. Uh, I mean, literally, in the case of, you know, Bruce Dickinson becoming a vocalist, but also changed their fortunes. It was their, at the time, their, I believe, highest-charting album... Well, I think it was the first album of theirs that hit number one in the UK charts. Yes. And Run to the Hills, which was the single released just before the album was their first top 10 UK single. Um, and certainly was actually where I first encountered them. I'm pretty sure I'll come back to that in a second. Um, and it did absolutely change the face of metal. You know, Maiden were a known band. They had been on television. They were, you know, they had had charting albums. They were a known successful band with Paul Diano, you know, before this album. Right. But, but they were not, I don't know, it was kind of, they just weren't seen as a huge band. They weren't seen as part of British pop and rock culture, whereas Number of the Beast just exploded. It was so huge. And suddenly, if you were a rock fan, you know, you kind of felt like you had to have heard this album. You had to probably own this album if you could afford it, but you certainly had to know it. And everybody was talking about Iron Maiden. And this was also the band that really, sorry, the album that really made the band huge in America, possibly because of the wrong reasons, because of the, all the controversy around Satanism and all that. Um, sure. And and I think the imagery too, right? Because when you think about yeah. bands that have mascots and you think about bands that have imagery in their album covers and associate, like I, it's, it's hard to top Maiden for pure imagery. And, and I just think of like how many patches on the back of denim jackets that were the cover of number of the beast that I saw during, you know, my yeah. middle school and, <laughs> and high school years. Like it just, uh, everything about that album, I think became iconic. Well, and Eddie, the Ed is, you know, oh, one, sure. one of the most famous and recognizable, uh, mm. you know, band icons, if you like band mascots in the world. Um, I was actually thinking about this and I was trying to think, is Eddie possibly the first, ever like rock band mascot you know that wasn't one of the band members the first sort of identifiable mascot associated with a band that was not uh you know yeah just the the lead singer or something i can't think of any that predated him um i mean i might be wrong you know and if listeners know of i know i'm one, scratching my head and yeah, i'm sure somebody know. will correct us if we're wrong but yeah. i when i think of the other mascots i think of them all coming after right they eddie. all they all post-dated eddie you know and iron maiden did this is the thing you look it's especially younger listeners sort of look at maiden now and they're such a part of the establishment and they're so old frankly that it's hard sometimes i think to 
look back in time and realize how much influence they had, that they were innovators, which, you know, you really don't think of Maiden as innovators now, but at the time they really were. Nobody was playing music like this. And in the way they conducted themselves as a band and as a, a business and as a brand with things like Eddie and their logo. Uh, yeah, it's, it's almost like if Kiss went right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if Kiss did it, if Kiss weren't like. If Kiss were they're a heavy like metal the band. non asshole <laughs> version of Kiss. You know what I mean? That That's kind of how I think about them is that, yeah, they have this marketing machine. I mean, they have their own plane for crying out loud. They have <laughs> several. Like it, it is a well oiled machine, but I think of that and I have happy thoughts. You know, as opposed to, you know, when I think of the Kiss lunchboxes and I just think of the, you know, how it just became about that and it didn't become about the music anymore. I didn't feel like, and I don't to this day, feel like Maiden lost their love of music or or lost their focus on trying to to push themselves and and create something with music. Even, Even Book of Souls is a great example, like definitely would not be considered in my mind a great Iron Maiden album or one of my favorite Iron Maiden albums, but it has definitely grown on me and they are continuing to push the boundaries of their storytelling in their, their music writing with that album. And I, I love that about them. Yeah. I, I think a lot of that is down to, you know, and, and almost everything about Maiden, you can lay at the feet of Steve Harris. Um, because, oh, for sure. you know, he was the founding member. He was the guy with the vision He's always been the guy in charge. You know, read any interview with anybody in Maiden and they will say, well, yeah, Harry, as they call him, Harry's the boss, you know. I got a good couple of nuggets about that when we get further uh, in. Right, yeah, much as Rod Smallwood, their manager, is legendary for being, you know, a a real hard, driving a hard bargain type manager and really fiercely protective of Maiden, everybody will tell you, well, yeah, Rod's a great manager, but Harris is the boss. Every, you know, yeah. like everything Harris wants, he gets and everything he says goes. And one of Steve Harris's obsessions throughout the life of Maiden has been about, for want of a better phrase, keeping it real. And that it is all about the music. It's all about the fans. It doesn't care much about the press. doesn't really care about reviews. Uh, you know, sort of doesn't play up to those aspects of fame. He lives for making, writing Iron Maiden songs and then playing Iron Maiden songs live for the fans. And uh, that even extended to their appearances on Top of the Pops, which is something I know that you're familiar with, but some of our listeners might not be. Top of the Pops is a long-running, it's not defunct now, but it was a very long-running UK music show concentrating on the Top 40 charts. Uh, Weekly, every Thursday night, I think it was, for half an hour. But it was all done in a studio. So before the days of music videos, they would literally get all the bands in a studio and they would perform for the audience, uh, mostly to, well, in fact, always to backing tracks. They they would mime everything, you know, instruments, vocals, everything to backing tracks to the audience. And uh, this is important because Top of the Pops was one of the most watched programs on TV. It regularly got 10 million viewers every week. (laughs) One of my favorite performances on there is Twisted Sister. I love Twisted Sister's performance on Top of the Pops. Can you even imagine 10 million viewers every week for, you know, and this ran for decades. I mean, literally decades. Those are Walking Dead numbers. It's just crazy. Uh, Yeah, it was one of the most watched programs in the country. Uh, And if you were featured on, and lots of bands going back to the sort of 70s and 80s and 90s will tell you, the moment that they appeared, first appeared on Top of the Pops was what made their career. You know, if you got yep. it right, if you had the right performance, you could sell a fucking shitload of records. Anyway, 
Maiden, right from their first appearance, which was Running Free off the first album, refused to mime. They uh, always said, we will go on, but we must play live because that's who we are. We're a rock band. We play live. That's what we do. Uh, And this, you know, caused no end of trouble over the years with the producers of the show and stuff. But they did. Every time they appeared on Top of the Pops in the studio, rather than playing a video, they always played live. And that, that, I think, is a good microcosm of how one of the reasons why they have managed to maintain that sort of consistency and credibility throughout their career, because Harris is that bloody minded. And, you know, his priorities are the music, the live performances, the stage shows, the fans, not the fame, the press, the bling, the photo opportunities, you know, it just doesn't care about any of that. Yeah, for sure. And as someone who saw them play live this year, and I know a bunch of our listeners also saw them on this past tour, um, their attention to the product that they put out on the live stage is one of the things that has cemented them as legends. Right. Well, down to, as you said, the fact that they have their own plane. They've had several right. oh, over absolutely. the years. I mean, helped by the fact, obviously, that Bruce Dickinson can fly planes. Uh, but even if he couldn't, you know, I mean, there's lots, lots of bands who uh, fly around in private jets and stuff. But Maiden literally pack their entire tour, like all the stage gear, everything onto yep. a single massive jumbo jet plane. Uh, and if you've seen the documentary Behind the Beast, one of the reasons they do this is because they can take it to places that logistically they simply couldn't go otherwise right. with, with the huge show. And so they can play in places where big rock bands often don't play, which means they're playing to 100,000 people at a time or something stupid like that because rock bands don't go to Chile or wherever. Well, and that's kind of a theme with them is they do things that other bands don't do or don't do anymore. I mean, when you look at the stage show that Maiden puts on for whatever tour that they're going out and doing, it's always different. It's always the theme of whatever the latest album was. Yep. And it is a big stage production in a way that bands don't do that anymore. There was an era of theatricality in metal and rock, and it, for many bands, died in the 80s. And here's Maiden, who every time they come out, they have this huge set. They have these amazing set pieces that you always get Eddie coming out once or twice during the show, sometimes in different you know outfits and things like that. Bruce changes costumes over the course of the show, depending on what song they're singing. And so, you know, I took my 10-year-old son to see... Made in this year. And that is something that, whether you're a metal fan or not, is just amazing to see. They put on a show. And a lot of bands don't do that anymore. A lot of bands have three or four microphones at the front of the stage and they stand in front of them and that is it. And that's what you get. And and I love that because I love seeing live music, period. But Maiden gives you a show, and a lot of bands don't do that anymore. Yeah, you're right. You've got to appreciate the the stagecraft, regardless of, you know, whether or not you're a huge fan of the music. And this again, you know. You and I, Maiden, neither of us would say Maiden is our fav- favorite band, but there is a respect and an appreciation there that they are so clearly all about the music, that they have stayed true over the years, and that they do very clearly care about putting on a fantastic show for their fans. It may not be to everyone's taste. Yes, it's ridiculously overblown and sort of theatrical and what have you, but yeah, I think you can lay that at Steve Harris's love of prog. You know, he's like a self-confessed absolute prog rock lover. He loves Genesis and Wishbone sure. Ash and bands like that. Um, and a and lot that's of- why I kind of feel like Maiden can do whatever they want to do now. To me, they're oh, they a band can now, like... sure. Yeah, and, 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 but I, I give them 
I'm a lot more forgiving of them than I am of like Metallica because I have that chip on my shoulder about the Megadeth. So you can mark that off on your bingo card for, for those of you playing the game. But when it comes to Maiden, like they can make an album that I don't care for. They can make a song that I don't care for. And I never, it never tarnishes my thought about Iron Maiden. Right. Because they have put, they've done everything that they've, they've done so much more than we've ever asked or could have expected of them yep. that they can do whatever the hell they want. And it doesn't, I'm glad they're out there making music. They could make, they could make a Genesis album and I would be good for Iron Maiden. Like they can do whatever they want to do. It doesn't matter to me anymore because I'm just thankful that we still have them. Right. They've earned it. They've, you know, they've really put in decades of blood, sweat and tears. Um, so yeah, it's, and like I say, and, and never without, uh, always without sort of, you know, self-destructing, even when Bruce Dickinson left, you know, right. there was no question that that was the end of the band. Uh, I mean, internally, I suppose they may have had those questions, although I frankly doubt it. But certainly, even externally, I don't recall, and maybe I'm misremembering, but, you know, I was big into, you know, that was during the period when I was regularly reading music papers every week, reading Kerrang! and what have you, and Terrorizer. And I don't recall anyone speculating that Dickinson leaving Maiden would mean that the band split up. Do you know what I mean? I don't recall anybody right. actually saying, oh, could this be the end of Iron Maiden? Sure, they speculated, can Maiden carry on without, can Maiden right. be successful, can be successful? without yeah. him? But there was never any question that Steve Harris would go, well, if Bruce leaves, then you, we're, we're going to call it a day. Uh, right. I, I don't think anybody thought that. Um and I think it's that kind of, no, 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 we're just, this is what we do and we're going to keep on doing it f until we collapse. I think that is, you know, has a certain appeal to uh, to people, especially, you know, those of us who are getting older. <laughs> can kind, oh, yeah, there's, kind of there's absolutely <laughs> a comfort in that. I mean, I think there's a comfort in all of those bands that we sort of grew up with that are still out there making music, because if they're still out there, it means that we're not that old yet. Right. You know, like we're not like our favorite bands are still <laughs> yeah. out making music. Like I can't be that old yet when Iron Maiden just put out a new album. You know, it's like it, it, because that is it, for those of us that are metalheads, it's such a we talk about the soundtrack of our life, you know, and, and how music is just so woven into our life experiences that, yeah, I mean, I'm still when I listen to Iron Maiden, I'm still 13. Right. I'm still 14. And so, yeah, the fact that they're out there means that I can. I'm not 43. <laughs> right. I'm not, well, and I'm you, not, uh, you see Steve Harris, you know, some, a guy his age, the way, the energy that he has on stage, the way he runs around on stage, like crazy. Uh, yeah. And that, as you say, makes you think like, well, if he can do that and he's in his sixties by now, I'm sure. Um, or close to it must be then. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, there must be hope for the rest of us. Aldens. Well, and I, I feel the same way about Judas priest, you know, and, right. and here they are putting out uh, the latest video for their upcoming album, which sounds freaking amazing. So although like, Rob Halford is somewhat less mobile on stage than, uh, Dickinson and Harris. <laughs> oh <laughs> yes. I mean, there are 25 year olds that are a lot less mobile than Bruce Dickinson on stage. That was yeah. the thing that blew me away the most about seeing them this past year was just how that has not changed at all he has always been i remember seeing you know interviews with him and documentaries about maiden literally back in the 80s and he would be interviewed while he was on an exercise bike you know while he was on a stationary bike because sure. he's just always been that guy because he his thing is that he runs around stage and if he can't run around stage while he's performing you know you kind of feel like well that's not really that's not really him uh, and I'm sure he's aware of that, that people expect that of him. So he's just, he's always been one of the most incredibly fit people 
um, right. you know, in in metal, certainly. Uh, so the other thing, okay, so let's get off the, let's get, do a bit of follow-up. Um, right. You think Maiden is a band that there's a lot to talk about with? I mean, we haven't even done our housekeeping yet for oh, the... Right. For well, the- <laughs> well, but this leads in because I was going to say, the other thing about Maiden is, because they've been going so long, we we discovered when we announced that uh, we were going to do this on for the next episode, turns out people have opinions about Maiden. Shocking. Uh, <laughs> just like, oh my God, so many opinions about Maiden. And it made me wonder... If they are possibly the one band in metal apart from Metallica that engenders this reaction, like everybody has an opinion and a strong opinion about Maiden, just like everybody has an opinion about Metallica. There's not many bands you can say that about, you know, like most bands, there'll always be a few people who sort of go, meh, you know, but it seems like Maiden along with Metallica, everybody has a strong opinion about them and about their favorite album and about their favorite period of the band and, and all that stuff. Uh, and that really came out in the Facebook group. Yeah. I think the only other band I can think of that maybe has that level of discussion, but not as much because they haven't endured is black Sabbath, you know, in in the same way they haven't been as prolific in, in the later decades, obviously, but, but around black Sabbath, it's more of a question of which era, you know, do you like the Ronnie James Dio version? Up, do you yeah. like the the Aussie version? Um, but yeah, I would put Maiden right up there with Metallica in terms of uh, being a conversation piece. And not, I don't know that there's as much division around. I think the division around Iron Maiden is more of the albums and the the songs and sort of which era you like, as opposed to. Uh, I, I find that even in myself, obviously, around Metallica, it's more. Uh, confront of fierce, you know, almost confrontational of like people's feelings about Metallica and the different eras and the different lineups and stuff like that. But I think that from a conversation piece, when you say Iron Maiden, there's no metal fan that does not have an opinion on Iron Maiden. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and like I say, and we saw that in the Facebook group for sure. So uh, tell us what's been going on in that the last month. So our response to the Huntress episode that we did, if, if people remember, we did the Spell Eater album by Huntress. Uh, let's see. People liked the wrestling mentions. We've talked about that a couple times about how heavy metal is is uh, pro wrestling, and that seems to have resonated with some members of our group. But as far as the album itself, um, let's see. Well, people, also, Phil took your... Uh, Shots about Queensryche to heart. Um, we talked about that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we talked about that. Let's see. I wanted to get to the con. I, I thought I marked this one, but there was a particular comment. Uh, Stuart said, I enjoyed this album a lot more than I was anticipating. He said, definitely has a slightly 80s feel for me, and that's not a bad thing, probably because it's reminding me of some of the bands I can remember listening to back then, particularly an Australian power metal band, Taramis. Uh, he said for some reason, and there is a video that he posted that you can check out that was pretty awesome. Uh, Lenny said, thanks for the album, Brian. Great recommendation out of the blue for me. I like to keep my ear to the ground, but Huntress had passed me by. Another wonderful episode and dissection. Very pleased to have Brian pick out the Slayer vibes, which was eluding and bothering me. I didn't. I don't often gravitate towards the goblin thrash sound, but we should talk about that in a second, uh, but always enjoy it. When I sit down to listen to it, I'll be checking more out. A lot of the themes had passed me by. So the track that shall not be mentioned in the terror discussions were exactly the kind of conversations I could listen to all day. So annoying because that riff in terror was easily my favorite until the subject matter came up. Not ruined, just undeniably tainted. 
Uh, he said Eight of Swords is an absolute belter as well. Yeah, that that Huntress album ended up being. There was a lot more to discuss there. I yeah. think on, in in terms of the the topics they covered than I thought. Uh, Scott said never listened to this band before. To be honest, I did like it a lot, but I kept expecting Tom Araya to start the lyrics on almost <laughs> all the songs. Uh, he said I didn't hear much Megadeth or Priest, but a lot of Slayer. Go figure. Uh, I think you made see. the Slayer comparison while we were talking about the. Uh, it was the guitar the tone and some of the yeah some of the melodies that they yeah. they picked out for sure. Uh, Phil said another fun episode for an album that in the end I didn't care for from a band I'd never heard of. Didn't hate it, but it was just kind of nondescript metal for me. Except for Eight of Swords and the Tower, it all just sort of blended together without any real hooks for me. He said I wasn't a huge fan of the Goblin Thrash metal style. Um, so the Goblin Thrash thing is kind of interesting <laughs> because. You mentioned that on the show, and lo and behold, it has become part of the Thrash It Out lore. I know, it's um, like, just a throwaway comment, and now it's become a thing. <laughs> it has, because lo and behold, our mascot is actually a thrashing goblin. Little I, did we... Little did I know. I mean, like, I drew uh-huh. that thing, and you know, just for people who don't, you know, didn't sort of think about this before, the whole reason that the Thrash It Out uh, hand giving the horns is green is to be inclusive. The whole reason I made it green is so that it wasn't a, a human skin tone. I didn't want listeners of color, uh, you know, non-white, non-English, whatever, or male or female. I didn't want anybody to look at that and think, oh, well, this show isn't for me. So by making it, you know, a non-human shaped and green uh, hand and arm, it was like, this is not, you know, clearly this is not sort of excluding anyone. It is not human. I didn't, however... It, deliberately intend it to look like a goblin <laughs> but no and it, i forget who and i apologize because uh, and you can let us know on the facebook page but there was a conversation on twitter where someone was like oh i wish there was you know a goblin thrash t-shirt or something like that and i said well just look at our logo it's a goblin thrashing like that's what it is and that's when the conversation kind of evolved to that piece so yeah, yeah the, everything happens for a reason and we now have a goblin mascot for thrash it out which is great and goblin thrash is a thing indeed and we do actually have t-shirts and i'd actually i'd completely forgotten about this and you reminded me uh that yeah we actually do have t-shirts i made a t-shirt design on Redbubble ages yep. ago but then i'm not sure if we ever publicized it or made it public but anyway no i think we did a trial run just to see how they came out and what's cool about Redbubble, which i didn't even know and and i know a couple of people have bought them since on Redbubble, is that you have a design, and then you can pick the color of the T-shirt and actually the design, too. So the, I think the original run that we did was like these slim fit T-shirts, where as a guy who's not very slim myself, um, <laughs> those aren't necessarily the best fit for me. I like the traditional, I like the generic fit ones sure, that you sure. get when you go to a show. You can totally order that, and you can order different colors. So I ordered like almost like a denim uh, colored blue with the logo on it and i'm i'm bringing that shirt to cali with me when i go to cali next week so yeah awesome. i just ordered one and they're about 20 bucks with shipping which is really good and uh they ship anywhere which is why you did Redbub- that, red bubble right right that's the other thing about red bubble is that they are one of the few uh people who do this sort of thing you know like cafe press and stuff but they're one of the few people who do this sort of thing where they have different uh production outlets on separate continents so if i order one of those shirts from here in the uk it's produced somewhere in europe and shipped here i don't have to wait for and pay for it to come and be shipped from somewhere in the u.s but if you're in the u.s they have production outlets there as well and so you will you know and i think that's the same for not just american europe i think they have um 
one in Asia as well. And the point being that, you know, there is somewhere more local to you than just getting everything from a fucking warehouse in Philadelphia yep. or something, you know? Uh, and so for those of us who aren't in the States, Redbubble, even though it's sometimes not as cheap per item as somewhere like Cafe Press, in terms of shipping and convenience, is actually much better. And also because of the kind of, you know, people we are and the kind of show this is, uh, we have also kept the uh the markup the profit on yeah the i was just gonna say that really low uh we do make a small profit but we literally make something like two dollars profit per shirt if that right uh it is as pretty much as low as it could be without literally selling them at cost uh and that's which a- is why we don't like hugely advertise it it's, yeah. it's literally just like if you if you dig the show and you want to and you want a uh, t-shirt for it then it is out there and it's cool and you can get it in whatever color t-shirt you want and, um, right, and I'll yeah. I'll put the link uh, I'll put the link to the shirts in the show notes. So if you want one, you know, go ahead and get one. But yeah, it's not a money spinner for us because just because it's not, you know, we, we didn't really want it to be. We didn't need it to be. But if you want to go to Redbubble and get one of those shirts, I will put the link in the show notes, and you can uh, you can go and get one. Awesome. A couple other co- uh, comments about the Huntress one. Uh, Tony said another great episode. Haven't really got strong views on this one either way. So there's not a lot for me to add. However, it's nice that for the first time in ages, I won't have to buy my homework. And of course, he's talking about <laughs> the one that we're going to be reviewing this week. Uh, Jack said, another album that did almost nothing for me. Huntress sounded like a poor imitation of Arch Enemy to me, but with more symphonic black metal influences. Uh, the blast beat plus speed picking combo that defines black metal is one of my most hated tropes in metal. So Huntress <laughs> lost me every time they pulled it out. Uh, Which they did Anthony pull out a fair amount. They definitely did. He said, uh, when Anthony mentioned guitars are functional, I couldn't agree more. It felt so by the numbers that I found it hard to latch on to any riffs or choruses. That brings up something for me. I, I remember talking on the episode about how the I really, really dug that first album, which Spell Eater is. And then it sounded like as they moved into their second album that they sort of polished it a little bit. And their sound kind of evolved a bit. After listening to all three of those Huntress albums... I did not like how their sound evolved from album one to two to three. To me, it got more mainstream, right. and it lost some of the raw energy that those fir- that first album had, so I kind of didn't like it. Yeah, that's a shame, because the, the raw energy of that album was one of the things that I did like about it. And as I yeah. said, I actually, I confess, I haven't got around to listening to the other albums uh, yet, so I can't really form an opinion, but it sounds like... Yeah, they're kind of, if they're losing one of the aspects that I most liked about that first album, then that's, I'm probably going to agree with you. And, uh, you know, they're probably yeah. not going to grow. On I'm still either. listening to that first one. Uh, Mark said, another great podcast, Brian and Anthony. Thank you. If my homework was this awesome back in school, I would have been a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> uh, we do Kenneth give you said, the best homework. It's true. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Everybody's getting A's this week. Uh, <laughs> Kenneth said, I'm always impressed by Brian's enthusiasm for music. I don't like not an album for me, but very much looking forward to the next one. Uh, let's see. Andy said, you guys are both circling a thought that I had while listening to this record. I was entirely unfamiliar with Huntress until now, and I don't know how much about their songwriting process, uh, or I don't know much about it or band dynamics or whatever, but basically this album sounds a lot like a Jill Janis solo album. With the exception of Eight of Swords and maybe one or two other tracks, none of the playing here is especially flashy or really draws attention away from the vocal performance. Brian hears a little Slayer, and I do as well. I was reminded more of Amana Marth, but the sort of flat nature of the playing reminds me a little of other all-but-solo acts like Danzig or King Diamond. 
Well, and I think that's fair. I mean, we we kind of said that a little on the episode. It's, uh, you know, her vocals are clearly the center point of the album. Um, and if you look at the lineup and the sort of, you know, the band biography, it's clear that she and the uh, lead guitarist are the sort of, you know, they're like the the Lennon-McCartney, if you like, of the band. It's the, the rest of the band revolves around them. Um, so I think that's a fair criticism, you know. And yeah. th- that's not to say that that's necessarily a bad thing because lots of people like bands like that. There are bands like Danzig that people absolutely fucking love uh, that are so clearly centred around the vocalist. So, yeah, I think that's fair to say. And then Dan said, I'm pretty sure that I said Sister Sin sounded like the European version of Huntress in response to the Sister Sin episode, so this is probably all my fault. And that's probably a good way to end on that one. Can you confirm or deny? Because I do have a vague memory of that, but I don't recall if you were already listening to them at that point. My memory is so terrible that no, I can't, but I'm going to take his word for it. That prob- I know that Huntress was a band that someone mentioned because it was a combination of that and when I went to my local music shop, they had all three albums there in the used CD bin, and their cover art is what really sort of drew me in. So it was like, oh, yeah, someone did mention these guys. I'm going to pick these up, and they were like five bucks a piece. So I got all three right, albums for right. like 15 bucks. Um, but yeah, most of the new stuff that I check out is because someone mentioned it on our Facebook page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As we've said before, it's uh, it's a great community. It's a great place to hear and be exposed to new music and new bands, uh, you know, and you and I have absolutely both benefited from that just as much as the listeners. So we love it. Absolutely. Um, so as always, we'll remind people, if you're not a part of the Facebook group and you want to join, go to facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out uh, and just apply for membership. And we, we approve everyone. You know, it's just for some reason, Facebook groups have can't be open. Uh, you have to be a member in order to post them, but we just approve everyone. Don't worry about it. Um, and the other thing, of course, you can do, to support the show is you can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and pledge to uh, support us. Now, uh, first of all, we have two new patrons since last episode. They are Matthew Johnston and somebody calling themselves Not The Brain, who I think I've encountered before on Twitter. Uh, that must make them pinky then. Indeed, yeah. Uh, and if I could rack my brains better, I'd probably remember their real name. But it wasn't in their sign-up details, so there you go. Not the brain. Uh, by all means, come and introduce yourself on the Facebook group. Uh, Welcome. <laughs> if you want to. Um, so, uh, talking about Patreon, let's just have a quick diversion about a couple of things. First of all, uh, some people may have seen that there was some controversy with Patreon this month. Uh, sorry, last month in December, where they, and I, I don't want to go into too much detail, but basically they were trying to change something that's inconvenient and completely fucked it up in the process. And <laughs> yeah, they uh, did. it was a massive PR disaster. Basically, and this came up actually in discussion, David Richardson, who's you know recently become uh, a patron, uh, was like, why have I just been charged for an episode? Is there a new episode? I didn't see that. And it, what happened was the last episode came out on like the 4th or something of the month of December. And so what Patreon does is it waits until the first, until the end of the month. And then on the first of the new month, it aggregates all of the pledges you've made that you owe money for essentially throughout that month and uh, makes one charge to your credit card and then distributes the money. And it does that because otherwise you would be charged a fee or they would be charged a fee. Someone would be charged a fee for every single pledge on your credit card. Right. And if you are, if you are somebody who supports a lot of 
works through Patreon and, you know, maybe support Patreon that puts something out every other day or whatever. That's a lot of pledges. That's a lot of credit card charges. And they, they have been trying to figure out there's also an issue, this is less of an issue for us, but there is also an issue where some Patreons offer uh, exclusive stuff to patrons. And so people will sign up on like the 10th of the month, get access to all the exclusive stuff, and then cancel their pledge, you know, download it all, and then cancel their pledge two days later. So they never get charged. Uh, that's not really an right. issue for us, but it is an issue for some people who produce things like exclusive artwork and stuff, or even exclusive music for their patrons. And so Patreon have been trying to figure out a way to get around this and a way to solve this problem. Unfortunately, they chose the absolute worst possible the worst. <laughs> solution, which was to charge everyone uh, at the time of their, you know, joining and to pass the credit card charges on to you guys, the listeners. Yeah. And they, the worst thing about all of this is that they didn't consult us at all. No, they did it in a vacuum. Yeah, they didn't consult any creators uh, as far as, you know, some people said, oh, well, I'm sure they consulted the biggest creators. I've, I know some people who are, you know, who literally earn like $10,000 a month on Patreon and they were not consulted. Uh, so I don't think they consulted any of the actual creators and didn't give us even the option to say, no, it's okay. If there's extra charges, we'll absorb them, you know, pass them on to us. Don't pass them on to, our uh, to our patrons. They just didn't give us that option at all. And so it was, the whole right. thing was a PR disaster. Anyway, they have reversed course since and said, okay, we screwed up. We'll try and figure out a, a, another way. But for now we're going back to the old system. That's all great. However, during that period of uncertainty, which was maybe, it was only maybe like two weeks or something, but during that period, a lot of people uh, who supported stuff through Patreon basically cancelled their pledges in protest. Uh, and I know a lot of people who lost lots of supporters. Some people, some like some of those people who earn 10 grand a month or whatever through Patreon, suddenly lost like three grand in supporters, uh, you know, which is a big chunk of change. Um, we didn't. And that is kind of amazing. I mean, yeah, okay, we don't have, you know, it's not like we get $10,000 a month through Patreon right. or anything. We don't have that many patrons compared to some of these guys. But nevertheless, you know, we have enough that there's plenty of people who could have just gone, yeah, fuck this, and, you know, uh, cancelled their pledges in protest. And nobody did. And not only that, but a couple of people actually increased their pledges to show their support, which is just astounding. So. It's amazing. Yeah, so we really want to say thank you to everyone who is a patron and supports the show that way for for such loyalty and for not, you know, for being patient basically and for not uh canceling your pledges in protest because yeah, it's you know, when we look around almost everybody I else I know who has a Patreon lost some support to some degree or another as a result of that. And we didn't. It's well, kind of amazing. And to put it in context for on the creator side of things, this is on the heels of what has been a terrible year for people who create content on YouTube mm. because of the adpocalypse. And so because of all the, what YouTube basically does now is they're almost pre-flagging every video that goes up and you have to dispute it in order to get greenlit for advertising on your videos. So when you have people whose entire uh, career had now become putting videos on YouTube and being Patreon supported, they took a massive hit on YouTube that ate up a chunk of the ad revenue that they were used to getting on a regular basis over the past year. And then Patreon comes and then in also lost Patreon and supporters, has this yeah. fiasco. And it pretty much, for, for some people out there, it 
crippled their business model. And so, and it scared the living daylights out of people. And so you, you saw people now, even to this point are, are more, uh, looking to see what the next thing's going to be. And I can't remember who owns drip. Did we talk about drip, but basically it's Kickstarter. Thank you. Kickstarter owns drip and drip is not open to all creators yet, but basically that is going to be a Patreon style program where people can support creators on a more uh, consistent basis because they saw the opening and I know that they're adjusting whatever their strategy was um, before they launched this to the public because they just saw what Patreon did. The the crazy thing about um, Drip was that I literally got an email from Kickstarter about Drip like the day before I got the email from Patreon about these changes and I was like, could your timing be any better stroke worse depending on your point of view? (laughs) Well, because they, they're seeing that, you know, they're reading the tea leaves with that one. And then when you look at what Twitch has been doing over the past year in trying to really improve their creator side experience and the tools that they give creators, they have seen how YouTube basically yeah. shot themselves in the, or no, I wouldn't even say shot themselves in the foot. YouTube doesn't care about creators in the same way that, oh, God, um, no, no. like Twitch is a platform made for creators. And so, and then you see things like Mixer, which is now integrated into Xbox. So we, not to digress in that, but. Their landscape is shifting um, because of that stuff, and, and Patreon rightfully saw that they really screwed up and shook people's faith in them, and you know tried to make amends pretty quickly and reverse. So the the great bottom line is that they did they reversed the decision. But for us, the takeaway was just um, we knew we had an awesome community, we knew we had a very um, sort of reasonable and thoughtful community, and that played out in every discussion that I saw about this whole Patreon fiasco mm-hmm. and the fact that we were uh, consistently supported by the listeners and, and and in some cases even more supported by the listeners was just amazing as we watched this sort of raging you know explosion of uh the raging the, the ripple effect of, of shit i mean it was unbelievable <laughs> because you basically i felt bad because you had creators who their entire businesses on yep. patreon who were begging their you know supporters to say please just get you know let let this get sorted out please don't you know, leave, and then all of those creators are now angry with Patreon because for people that lost a lot of their supporters, they didn't get them all back magically. Right. You know, m- many of them got some of those supporters back, or maybe even most of those supporters back. But for a lot of people, at the end of the day, they lost support because of something they had absolutely no control over, and that is immensely frustrating, especially because Patreon had been seen as such a boon to to independent uh, creators, creators yeah who yeah absolutely who had finally found a way to you know get um however much support they could for what they were doing and continue to be able to create create and and patreon was sort of seen as this thing that was very um creator friendly and everybody now is just like what just happened yep. well and, and <laughs> like, uh, patreon even put all the onus on trying to get uh cancel pledges back on the creators it's not like patreon then emailed people and said we noticed that you canceled sure three you know all your pledges in the last couple of weeks but we've changed our policies please come back they didn't do that no. the creators had to somehow figure out if there was any way to do that and trust me patreon's uh sort of patron management system is not very advanced it is not great uh so Right. And, and, you know, and that's for us who have, like I said, a relatively small number of patrons for somebody who might have like 3000 patrons and they lost like, you know, 300 of them or something in that. I can't even imagine how they would dig through the Patreon dashboard, trying to find emails and mail those people and go, please come back. You know, that's just. And that's the thing is it was the simplicity for supporters 
that was one of the biggest selling points of Patreon. Like I support a couple of different here, you yeah. know campaigns on Patreon, and it's it, and to me it was always just really simple. I signed up, I would get charged once a month, I would get my emails for it, and I felt good about that process. It was very simple to sign up and support that, and so to have that become such a disaster was like. What are you guys doing? Yeah. Well, like that was the biggest takeaway: is what the hell yeah, were you guys anybody, thinking, and why would you do this in a vacuum? Yeah, did anybody really sit and think through the consequences of this? Um, uh, and that does actually okay lead to the uh, sort of the conclusion of all this is that we are staying on Patreon, um, partly because it is you know it is very simple for supporters. Yeah, people still know Patreon is still the you know that is the mind share as they say that's got the most kind of you know, where you ask people about that kind of supporting creators in this way, Patreon is always the one that people now think of. Uh, and they, like I say, have gone back to the old system, so everything's just the same as it was. So we're not moving away from Patreon yet, but we reserve the right to, you know, there's also friction. If we, Oh, we're keeping our eye yeah, on that drip. But if we move to somewhere like Drip, we will inevitably, we know that we will inevitably lose some supporters along the way because it's just you know it's tough to move people from one platform to another so we are staying on patreon for now but yeah be assured that we are keeping an eye on this um i I think you're still going to see twitch make another move as well because again amazon owns twitch and they are paying very close attention to both the missteps of youtube and the missteps of patreon so i i think they're building towards something that is going to go way beyond uh, Very possibly, yeah. Um, however, so all of this, like I say, the whole thing was a shit show, but one of the things it did do, one silver lining, is that it crystallized a few things that I, well, that we've both been thinking about for a while, and we've discussed this stuff, and we've decided that we are going to make a few changes to our patron rewards as a result. Uh, and this is also is partly linked to what you were just saying about YouTube. So first... Uh, we've decided that we are going to end the video shows, the occasional video episodes that we did. Um, honestly, I, you know, I'm in charge of that account. I see the figures, hardly anybody watched them anyway, if I'm honest. <laughs> I think that's partly because videos just aren't as convenient to watch on the go as, you know, yep. as listening to audio. Audio is portable. Yep, lots of people, you know, listen while they're driving, commuting on the train, whatever. It's just not convenient to watch video when you're doing that. Uh, and also... If you uh, recall the, you know, sort of the the promise of the video shows was patrons get to ask us questions and we'll discuss that stuff on the show. With the Facebook group, that's also kind of less important because... It's kind of happening daily. People can and do ask us questions all the time anyway, just as part of the natural discussion. So so it's time to, you know, evolve this. Uh, And so what we're going to do, hopefully, we think actually is even better for our patrons you know it's more valuable in getting you guys more involved and we hope you agree so what we've decided to do is uh we are doing well two things first we are going to do something that we are tentatively calling backstage pass uh if any of you out there can think of a better name for this once you've heard what it is please let us know um but for the moment we're calling it backstage pass and the idea is that every so often we will instead of doing a video show every so often and hopefully more often than we did the video shows every so often we will select a patron at random and invite them to come onto a Skype call with both of us to talk about an album that is special significant whatever to them so we'll contact you say do you want to come on the show be on the backstage pass pick an album Tell us what it is. We'll all listen to that album. We're not, we won't 
talk, we're not talking about like doing a track by track like Brian and I do on the regular show, but we'll literally just talk for, you know, half an hour or so with you. You can tell us why that band is so important to you, why that album is special to you, you know, what it means to you, maybe when you first heard it, that sort of thing. Um, and then we'll release those as bonus episodes, unedited, unfiltered, you know, pretty raw. Uh, listeners may not realize how much editing and processing we do <laughs> it may not sound like we do any for these regular episodes, but we do actually do a fair amount. Um, but we won't for these. Oh, I just want to say that as someone who does the stuff on the production side of podcasts, like you do an amazing amount of editing for this show, not, not in terms of like content that we're talking about, but in inserting the music and making sure everything sounds good. Like that's a ton of work. It's a fair amount of work. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, but yeah, so we won't do that. We literally will just record the Skype call. Uh, you know, release them as bonus episodes. We think that'll be fun. You know, we know from the Facebook group that you guys, the listeners, our community likes talking to each other and likes hearing opinions from other people. It's one of the things that we encourage with the show and with the community. So we think that, you know, that you guys will like that and that that'll be fun to listen to, you know, people who aren't us basically bring in yeah. a different point of view. And- and it brings in the the whole theme that we've talked about since the beginning, which is that you run into your buddies at your local record yep. shop and you're talking about what you're listening to and what your favorite stuff is and you're trying to turn people on to other things. And so it is sort of uh, another evolution Absolutely, of that. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so, uh, and then the second thing is that we are going to do a second listener choice episode per volume of the show, but with a twist. So at the moment, obviously, patrons, people know, listeners know, and patrons know, especially that we do the the listener poll where patrons can nominate an album and we will, uh, you know, we'll pick one at random and talk about it for an episode of the show. Uh, first time we did it, we did Mastodon's Blood Mountain. And then uh, this volume around, we did King's X album Dogman. Um, but this one, uh, we will do, uh, and again, we'll have to come up with a name for it. Maybe so I was thinking something like reissued or, you know, again, if you can think of a better name, let us know. Um, this will be an episode where we will ask patrons to instead to nominate an album by a band we have already talked about. Because we know that some of you are a bit frustrated that we only do one album by each band. And we've explained why we do that before. You know, we think there are fairly good and sound logical reasons for doing that, but we know that it does frustrate some of you. So here's a chance for you to put that right. So the idea is we'll say, okay, nominate your album. And so you can say, okay, well, I know you talked about, uh, you know, like famously our first episode was... South of Heaven. No, I was going to say St. Anger. Anger. Yeah, famously talked about Metallica's St. Anger. And now I'd like you guys to talk about Master of Puppets or whatever. And again, we will get, get those nominations in. We'll select one at random and that will be our second listener choice episode uh for that volume yeah that that is basically the the second chance episode that people have been demanding you know through their through their feedback from the (laughs) start yeah basically the uh, oh man you know i can't believe you guys did this album i really love this album well this is a chance for us to revisit some of those bands um and maybe talk about the album that you really adore from that exactly uh, and one thing i want to emphasize about this stuff is we're talking about obviously patreon and letting patrons uh, nominate this sort of stuff but i do want to emphasize that everyone can still listen to all of this stuff for free none of this is going yep. to be exclusive content even if you're not a patron you can you can hear it all um but if you are a patron as well as obviously supporting the show and getting a nice warm feeling from that, hopefully. But you also, you get the ability to then influence the direction of the show. And now, you know, even the chance to come and be on the show and chat with us about your favorite music. So that's what you get 
as a patron. And we think that that's, who knows, you know, you could argue maybe we should have done that from the start. But for whatever reason, we didn't, you know, we thought we were going in the right direction. It turns out maybe not. Um, and we think this is perhaps a better, you know, and a more fun thing for patrons to to get to do. Uh, and I've also just realized that we're going to have to put a new Patreon video together uh, because the old ones just isn't going to make any sense now. <laughs> Shit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> more work for me. So we will be doing at least one more video. Yeah. <laughs> I guess. Um, so, yeah, so that's all the Patreon stuff. Uh, so moving on back to let's get back to Iron Maiden. Um, I first heard Iron Maiden actually uh, on top of the Bob's. But they weren't performing. It was the video because by that point they'd actually sworn off performing on top of the pops because they kept getting screwed over by the sound mixers um, when they played live. Uh, and it was the video to Run to the Hills, uh, which was the first single on this album released a month before the album came out. And basically the first time anybody had heard Maiden with Bruce Dickinson. Um, but I don't, I don't think, and this is a long time ago, so I may be wrong, but I don't think I was aware of them at all before this track because it was only 11 years old for heaven's sake you know um i might be in the same boat as you because actually, no, it, whether that old. was the first time uh, and what what is this 82, 82 yeah, so, so yeah. i'm gonna say i was eight years right. old and so for me like that is the earliest memory i have of iron maiden is the run to the hills yeah. video so maybe i heard them somewhere before but this was definitely my my first registered memory of maiden is run exactly to the hills. And, the, and the same here yeah um so so it wasn't until years later that i even knew that paul diano existed poor poor paul diano <laughs> same here um but as a result yeah you know my kind of my life with maiden did start at this album and with that particular song which i still regard as an absolute classic song we'll get to that when we do the track by track but yeah so it's from this album onwards that i was even really aware of maiden and i think that again speaks to why this album deserves its place in this listing sure. of you know albums that really changed the face of metal it was so important to the band and it was so influential upon the world of heavy rock and metal uh you know and really kind of spearheaded you know maiden were already spearheading the whole nuobum uh movement but i think this really cemented their place as the leaders of that movement as the biggest and you know most successful and influential band in the whole new wave of british heavy metal movement yeah, I, I agree with everything that you just said. I mean, I think that for me, too, as I listened to this album, it, and I went back and listened to their first two as well, this this is such a turning point album for them, in it's my a opinion, quantum leap you know, as a listener, two, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I, I really do. In terms of sound and as, as we kind of move forward in terms of uh, storytelling, too, which is something that I, I really noticed. So... So yeah, and there's a great um, article on the Team Rock website about the making of this album that talks about you know the fact that Bruce Dickinson came in in '81, uh, and so their final gig with Diano uh, took place uh, in Copenhagen in September of 1981, and then Bruce was officially unveiled as their new frontman in October of '81, and so you had this whole change happening. Then they went in to record the album, and if I'm not mistaken, there was a clause in Bruce uh, Dickinson's contract with Samson, mm -hmm. uh, which was the band he was in before, that said that he could not write on this album. Now, whether or not uh, he would have been allowed to write on this album by Steve Harris is a whole other story, but there was a clause that he couldn't write on this. And so he came in, 
And um, this was an album that they had no material for yep. when they sat down to write this album. And so I'll just read a couple of quotes from this uh, making of album. Uh, let's see. Made more hold up in East London uh, rehearsal with a new singer, 23-year-old Bruce Dickinson, but had no new songs for their crucial third album. Uh, the pressure was on the young band. Um, and they had a couple quotes from Paul Diano in this interview. And he said, by the time Killers, by the time of Killers, uh, the band was getting a bit more technical. I didn't think the songs had the same attack, and I started losing interest. And Steve Harris said, I'm not into drugs myself. I never have been, but I'm not against other people doing what they like as long as it doesn't fuck up their gig. He said, well, Paul was letting it fuck up his gig. So that gives you some insight and again, into sort of why that changed. Well, and again, that harks back to what we were saying. You know, Harris is... His number one priority has always been, we Correct. are a brilliant live band, and that's what people come to see. And yep. if you and Diano said, uh, when you're fucked up on drugs and alcohol, you turn into a complete prick. But I did feel relief when I played that last gig. So clearly, it seems like they're both telling a similar story as to what led to his I, ousting. From I don't the band. think Diano has ever denied, you know, to be fair to him that uh, that yeah, it was the drinks and drugs and you know, just like not being able to perform to the standards that Harris believed he sure. should be able to. Because Deanna, you listen to those first albums, and Deanna is a fine singer, you know. Yes, his voice uh -huh. is a bit more sort of raw and earthy than Dickinson's, but he can hold a note, he can carry a tune, you know, he can do a bit of good bellow out of the oh, vibrato. Sure. No, you know? I like it. Yeah, him. He, he was a good singer. Um, yep. But he, yeah, you know, by his own admission, just couldn't, towards the end of his time with Maiden anyway, just couldn't reproduce that live. And for a band that prides itself on being able to do exactly that and play everything yeah. live just as good, if not possibly even better than it sounds in the studio, that's no good. You know, that's that's not going to win you any plaudits. And you mentioned uh, Rod Smallwood before, and he was saying of Bruce Dickinson when they were kind of looking at, you know, who's going to be the new singer. He said, I, had, I hadn't even met Bruce, but I really didn't like him. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, Steve said, uh, I didn't care. I just thought the geezer had a great voice. So I said, stuff that, I want him. Right. Which and, again uh, and Bruce shows said, that it's Harris who's in charge, not Smallwood. <laughs> exactly. Yep. And Bruce said, Rod talked to me at the Reading Festival and said they'd like to try me out. He said the first words out of my mouth were, well, when I get the job, which I will, don't expect that it'll be the same as with the guy you've got at the moment. <laughs> he said, I thought it was best to come in with all guns blazing. Uh, so you could see the, the uh, ego clash that was set to happen. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the seeds um, were laid down, you know, very early. Correct. But, uh, you, you, you know, you said whether Harris would have allowed Dickinson to write on the album anyway. But I think, well, I mean, there are reports that even though he's contractually not allowed to help write the songs. Uh, there have been many reports over the years that actually he kind of did. He just made sure that he didn't actually get any sure. kind of credit, uh, you know, or in some cases he said that he didn't contribute enough to merit automatically getting a writing credit. Uh, I personally suspect that he probably did, but just said, just don't, don't credit me, you know, obviously because we'll get yeah. sued. Um, but so I was going to say, but also, I mean, the majority of this album is written by Harris, obviously. But this is also, I think, the first album where, uh, is it the first album where Adrian Smith gets a songwriting credit? He gets three on this album in any case, which is like, you know, a lot uh, for anybody who uh, isn't Steve see, Harris, frankly, on a maiden album. And it is right. definitely the first one, the only one, with a Clive Burr songwriting credit on the album. So... I think the fact that they went in without any pre-existing material 
to this album, and it was the first time they'd done that, and with a whole with a new singer, and the idea that they can now write different and Harris has said more complex songs because right. of Bruce's ability as a vocalist. You know, maybe he would have, but we'll never know because yeah, he was you know contractually not right. allowed. And Martin Birch, who was the producer, said when Bruce joined, it opened up the possibilities for the new album tremendously. I don't, I simply don't think that Paul was capable of handling vocals on some of the quite complicated directions I knew Steve wanted to explore. And that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah, one of the things I mentioned before that Steve Harris is a big prog fan. I remember. Back in oh, sort of early nineties, there was an interview I think in I think in Kerrang, um, where and it was I say interview. It was one of those just quick like five second, you know, how many spoons have you got type bollocks interview. But one of the things they asked him was, "What's your favorite song of all time?" And he said, "Supper's Ready" by Genesis. <laughs> Which, if you yeah. don't know, "Supper's Ready" was at the time an epic. It, it's the entire B side of one of their albums, Foxtrot. Uh, and it's so it's like a 22 minute track or something, which now, obviously, in these days of post metal and drone, isn't all that, you know, surprising. But trust me, in 1973 or whenever that was, a 22 minute track that took up the entire Southern album, that was pretty amazing. Um, and yeah, Steve Harris chose that of all things as his favorite track of all time. <laughs> So here's where we get into a little bit, and this is kind of the final part, but you should go read this uh, Team Rock article. I will put a link to it in our show notes. It's called Some Kind of Monster, How Iron Maiden Made Number of the Beast, and it's from 2016. So it says the Beast on the Road tour kicked off in February of 82, and it ran for 10 months, 182 shows, and it was on the road that the tensions between Harris and Bruce Dickinson first started to surface. And Dickinson said, uh, Steve and myself always used to clash he wanted to fire me after the first month on the Number of the Beast tour. Wow. <laughs> uh, and Steve said, at first I thought I was imagining it, but there were nights on stage during the early part of that tour where Bruce used to like try and jostle me on stage. He said it was all done in fun, only you could tell it was a bit more than that sometimes. And Bruce said, you basically had a very passive band, except for Steve, who was right up front in the middle. And when I was watching them from the front, I was like, huh, I don't like the look of that. That's wrong. The singer should be standing there. So the first thing I did was move my little monitors into the middle, which got in his way. I'd be singing along, getting into the groove, and I'd feel this thump, and he'd be there elbowing me out of the way. And Steve said it was like an ego thing, and it did it did make me wonder if he was right for the band. I don't know if he thought he had some sort of stamp, he had to stamp out his territory or whatever, but he didn't need to. And Dickinson said, we were young, and we were all chucked into this huge shitstorm of success, uh, and we dealt with it in different ways. To a certain extent... Uh, you make a Faustian deal when you join a successful band. There is a price that gets exacted upon you, and there's very little that you can do about it except hope to come out the other end of it right side up. And so I just thought that was fascinating to hear about, um, A, that they really had to start that album from scratch, that they had nothing sort of going into that album, and then B, that you bring in this new singer, and right away he's sort of carving out his territory uh you know, against the the sort of patriarch of that band. Yeah. Well, and and right, and Steve Harris absolutely again is the patriarch, is the leader. He, you know, he may not be the vocalist, but he has always been the band leader of Maiden. Uh, and if you've ever seen them live, that is so obvious. It is so clear that he is like the the linchpin around uh, around which the rest of the band revolves. I didn't know that about the whole jostling and stuff, though. That is <laughs> that is crazy. Well, then but, it doesn't it make perfect sense when you think about what even to this day a live show from Maiden is. It is not Bruce Dickinson standing in the front center of exactly, the stage singing. Exactly. 
it is Bruce Dickinson standing every other place right, on running the stage. around all he over the stage. Everywhere. Yeah, yeah, with Harris. Yeah, he basically made all of the rest of the stage yeah, his stage. Yeah, because Harris has got the middle foot on the monitor, machine gunning the crowd with his bass. You know, that that's uh-huh. what he does. He's he's the mastermind. It's interesting, I, I hadn't read that before, but it's interesting what Dickinson said about the rest of the band being fairly passive as well, because that's also kind of true. Uh, yeah. You know, even in the early days, like I remember when I saw them live uh, on the sort of Bruce's farewell tour before he left back in the nineties at the NEC arena in Birmingham. And uh, I remember being amazed at like Dave Murray, especially barely moves. I mean, he's an amazing guitarist and obviously the only other member of the band besides Steve Harris, who's been with the band, the, you know, their entire lifespan. Um, But he, he barely moves. He just stands at the back, smiling the whole time, effortlessly, effortlessly, playing these ridiculously complex solo lines and stuff. Oh, for sure. You know, yeah. as I say, he's an amazing guitarist, but he barely moves. <laughs> and then you've got Dickinson, yeah, running back and forth, shouting his head off. And, uh, you know, Harris basically pretending that he's the lead vocalist. <laughs> Correct. It's, oh, yeah. man, it's it's just crazy. Which all contribute. And then you've got the stage show, and then you've got Eddie, and all together, like, none of those things work without the right. other. And so, you know, that's one of the things that makes Maiden unique in that it, uh, it they just function differently than just about every other they band. They do, but they do function. And that, again, you know, yeah. oh, it, for you sure. look at, you watch any documentary, and there have been several now, about the sort of inner workings, the behind-the-scenes workings of a band, of, well, of Maiden, you know, and of a band that big. And it is almost kind of run like, well, it's certainly run like a business, but almost kind of run like a military operation. Uh, you know, and I mean, there's a reason that you know, Harris's nickname is Sergeant Major Harris because, yeah, he yep. calls all the shots. Uh, but that's what works. That is what has kept Maiden going. And, you know, his partnership with Rod Smallwood is what has kept the band successful in a business sense uh, throughout all the years. Like, and there yeah. have been lean times, you know, as we've said before about bands that came up at the same time as Maiden in the late 80s, early 90s, when suddenly bombastic rock and metal was no longer the thing uh you know lots of bands tried to change with those times maiden never did because they didn't need to but when you look at all of these bands that are still around today you can point to one or two personalities in that band that are essentially the reason that things for better or for worse have stayed on path over time you, when you look at Lars and yep. James, when you look at Dave, when you look at Carrie King, when you look at Scott Ian and um, Charlie Benante, when you look at all of these bands, when you look at Gene and yep. Paul, they all have that one or two people who... A keeper of the flame. They are the keeper of the flame. Absolutely. They drive the vision. And that's the and that is really, when you look at the harsh landscape of music, you have to have someone like that because it will eat you a lot. You, like... You just can't float along and be successful and have a long career in music without someone who is extremely driven, probably to the point of alienating other right, people. Right, almost to the point of mania, yeah. Well, and and also, yeah. conversely, without having other people in the band who trust that person right. to make the there decisions. There have to be people that go along with yeah, the, the vision. Yeah, the people who are like, okay, yeah, I will, I'm happy to stand back and do my thing and I'll trust you to make yep. those decisions and, you know, to drive us forward and I'm just along for the ride. And and that's Kirk Hammett and Dave yep. Ellefson and Tom Araya, you know. Uh, well, and 
Absolutely. And Frank Bellow. Absolutely. And guys like Dave Murray and Yannick Gares and, you know, and Nico. Yep. Uh, you know, totally. Nico has gone on record many times in Iron Maiden as basically saying, like, I'm, you know, I don't care. You know, I leave all of that up to everybody else because I just want to play drums in this amazing band and, you know, have a have a nice life as a result of it. Uh, and that's yep. exactly what he does. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, Nico, incidentally, uh, I don't know if you know this, but like everybody I know who has ever met Nico has said that he is just the absolute nicest guy you could ever meet. Like, you know, just not not a bad bone in his body and, you know, always got time for the fans and all that sort of thing. But yeah, just like the most happy-go-lucky, friendly, pleasant, ch- you know, doesn't belong in heavy metal, basically. He's too nice for heavy metal. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Especially because when you meet people, you never know. Yeah. You know, especially when you meet rock stars, when you meet people in in bands, you never know if they're going to be awesome or if they're going to be a dick. And I've been pretty fortunate so far. The people that I've met have all been super cool, but that's not always no. the case. So that's well, great. And even the people who are really nice, like Dave Grohl, we mentioned before, has a reputation of being one of the nicest guys in rock. But nevertheless, he's a front man now anyway and he clearly is a sort of you know competitive ambitious guy for sure whereas i'm i'm told that nico isn't even that he's like he's almost completely devoid of ambition and ego uh, he's just you know, yep. just flat out nice um anyway so uh let's move on to the album itself so this was yeah 1982 so yeah like i said 10 years old i was when this was released good god um so this was only a couple of years after I'd first heard Black Sabbath, you know, as I've described before. Um, eight songs. It was 35 years old as of 2017. God, yeah. Eight, eight songs. <laughs> but only eight songs as well. You think you don't think of Iron Maiden. I mean, okay, they've always got that one Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner type. You know, they've got this reputation. Sure. For, there's always one song that's like, you know, feels like it's 30 days long. But you don't think of them as a sort of long song band and yet this only has eight songs uh and as a result it's 41 minutes which is yep. not that much longer than south of heaven you know no no it, it is this feels like the sweet spot for me i mean i do like albums that are approaching an hour or so but this the, a, a good 35 40 minute album is just so listenable you know it's just the 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 and this album you don't to me feel is, like is you're super making a, a day-long commitment to listen to it yeah. right yeah. Yeah. And again, it, it, so this album absolutely never overstays its welcome. Um, you know, as you had mentioned before, this is the first to reach number one on the UK chart. It reached number 33 in the US. It went platinum in the UK, US, Canada, among other places. And the number that I've seen, even though it's not directly stated on Wikipedia, but on some of the fan sites, is that overall, this album has sold over 14 million That's copies. That's the figure I saw as well. Yeah. 14 million yeah. of one album. Of one most, album. Most bands never reach that in their entire career. Most well-known bands never reach that in their yeah, entire I mean, career. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there are like long-lived successful bands who still have never sold 40, like Paradise Lost, I'm sure, have never sold 14 million copies of all their albums combined, you know. 14 right. million copies of one album, that is, it's almost impossible to imagine how it's insane. successful that is. You know, that's like Brothers in Arms levels of, or Master of Puppets levels of like renown. It's yeah. ridiculous. Uh, yeah, it went gold within a month of release here in the UK, which, which for is a crazy. heavy metal album especially, that is yeah, nuts. Crazy. Uh, and yes, platinum in the UK and US is just, yeah. So again, that's why this album, I think, stands out as the one that, if you're going to point to any Maiden album and say, this is the one that changed heavy metal, it's got to be this album because it was so successful 
it couldn't help but be influential. Um, so uh, let's get onto the the track by track then, because we're sure. we're already starting to run long. <laughs> this is this As is going to be another long one. <laughs> uh, so yeah. we kick off with track one, Invaders. I mean, what a great opening. Just the machine gun opening. What I love about Invaders is I love the, right after he, you know, Bruce sings that part that you just mentioned, the, it's got this sort of swashbuckling um, kind of tone to it. That's a good way of putting it, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, this isn't my favorite track on the album, and it is a. No, it's a either. weird one to start with. It's like, it is, it's energetic, it's fast, you know, it sort of, it puts you in the mood for the album. But it's such a, nevertheless, a strange one to start with. I know that Steve Harris actually isn't keen on this track. Like, he's said several times that he thinks it kind of doesn't fit with the rest of the album. Um, well, it's very jazzy, and it's very, yeah. um, it's sort of a proggy, jazzy feel to it. But I also feel like there, this is, uh, this is a absolutely necessary track because to me if you've listened to their first two albums yes then what this song does is it says to you hey um yeah this this is not going to be everything that you knew before but rest assured if you were a fan of the old iron maiden you're still getting a it's lot of that still iron maiden. i'm so glad you said it's that. still iron maiden. I, that's literally yeah, in so, my notes i've put that it bridges the gap between the past two yeah. albums and the new style. And also, obviously... And my it, note says, this song reassures you that if you were a fan of Old Maiden, you are still yep, getting that. And uh, it obviously gives Bruce Dickinson a chance to show off his range and the, the power in his voice, uh, you know, very adequately. And also, yes. <laughs> amusingly, right at the start, literally from the very first notes, there's the bass. Oh, my you God. You can't miss it. <laughs> I mean, as someone who loves bass, like, I... <laughs> It, uh, basically, Iron Maid's whole career is a bass lover's, you know, sort like, of dream. By the way, did, did you know we had a bassist? <laughs> oh, right, right, exactly. Yeah. So, see if you can pick out who drives the sound of this band. Yeah, which is awesome, right? And and uh, But yeah, I like there's something about this song. Like you said, it's not my favorite song on the album, but that upswing at the end, you know, every time he says Invaders, is just, uh, has this almost whimsical element to it and it well it feels really odd because the from a musical point of view you've got the the verse is fairly not standard because again in context at the but time it was not standard, standard yeah. at all but right right but then the chorus 
I think it's in a completely different key. It's it just sounds like it's come out of a different world and been bolted onto you know, which the, in some ways is Bruce Dickinson, right? I mean, he is this I, I guy who is sort of it's almost like him, you know, jumping onto stage or something like that. Like it's it's you can you can see this is the part where he elbows you know uh, Harris out of the way, where <laughs> he just says <laughs> invaders, and he sort of you know swings his arms out to both sides. Uh, it, but also the the guitar melody that do 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 invaders do 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 do, which is so cheesy. It's almost like kind of nursery rhyme level of melody. Um, but what amuses me most about that is that if you go and listen to early Halloween, they do that oh, all hell, the time. Yes. Yeah, it's very it's almost power metally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. They clearly picked up on that bit and went, oh, oh, let's do that. Yeah, which Only is interesting because you know, thirty seconds long. Because <laughs> it, it it also kind of shows that they're not afraid. They do. You know, Maiden do have these epic, you know, songs, and they do have very serious subject matter. But they also are not afraid to get kind of impish too. You know what I mean? And I think right, that you see right. that in the song for sure. Yeah. Well, and I mean that's something in general. Uh, about Maiden, isn't it? The kind of the subject matter, the storytelling. And this one even, you know, okay, this isn't obviously based on a book like so many of their, uh, you know, other songs are. But it is still, it's all, a, you know, it's a historical thing. Steve Harris clearly loves his history, loves his science fiction books, loves his horror movies, um, you know, and loads of their songs are about that sort of stuff. And again, that wasn't necessarily new for heavy metal. But I think they're the band that probably did it the most. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you know, you might you might get a band who might do one song on an album that sort of makes some vague references to some classic work of literature, you know, Frankenstein or something. But then here along comes Maiden and almost every other song. I feel like the next <laughs> song is what that's that's where I have what you just said in my notes. Right, right. Okay. Well, so let's go on to that. So track two is Children of the Damned. This is the note, I'm, and people are going to scoff at this, but uh, my note was, is this the most important song in Iron Maiden's history? Oh, wow. Why? Go on. Because it, to me, it is, it's proof of a couple of things. Number one, it's proof that Bruce's voice can take you on a journey. Right, yeah. And I think you got a taste of that in Invaders, right? That His voice grabs your attention. But here, when you take the tempo of this song, and the when I think of Iron Maiden, I think of storytellers in a way that no other band even comes close. Like when I listen to an Iron Maiden album, 
I listen to it's like it's like Uncle Bruce is going to tell me a story, and that's what I hear when I listen to Iron Maiden. And I feel like this is the song that a shows you that Bruce can do things that other people can't do. That his voice alone can take you on a journey. And my note, as far as it being the most important song, is I said, is this the beginning of storytelling when we think of Iron Maiden? Is this song the beginning of that sort of template of the storytellers that we think of Iron Maiden as being? And Because I feel like this song shows you everything that Iron Maiden can do that other bands either can't or don't do. And so right. I just feel like this song, because it's the second song in the album, there are songs that are better than the song. There are songs that do the storytelling better than the song. But I feel like at this point in their careers, this particular song said, this is who Iron Maiden is. They are storytellers. And that's where it just kind of hit me when I was listening to the song is like, wow, is this the one that you put a pin in and say it was here on this very turning point album from this band that just blew up at this point where you put a pin in this number two song and say, this is what people think of now when they think of Iron Maiden. Possibly, possibly. I mean, uh, regarding the whole sort of storytelling and, you know, adapting works, other f- works of fiction into song. Don't forget there was also Phantom of the Opera on, oh. is it, I think that's on the first album. Yeah. Um, and uh, Murders in the Rue Morgue, which I think is on Killers. Right, but uh, my but so, my thing is that it is Bruce Dickinson that is right. the storyteller. And so right, the narrator see, see. of this story being Bruce as opposed to Paul is where I think this all changes for Iron Maiden because this right. guy's voice is the voice of a storyteller. Well, and with the album being so successful, you know, most people who bought this album hadn't also already heard Phantom of the Opera or Murders in the Room Morgue. So it may well have been their first because this song is based on... Uh, well, uh, it's based on two things. It's based on Village of the Damned, which is in turn based on John Wyndham's novel, uh, The Midwich Cuckoos, which obviously has been, you know, sort of readapted and the concept of it has been reapplied to many, many things over the years, but that is essentially where it comes from. Uh, and so, yeah, maybe that this is the first time that a lot of people came across and not just this, obviously the next track as well, but the first time that people came across something like that, that is very obviously based on an existing work of fiction and turning it into a song, which again, they weren't the first people to do, but they do it so often. <laughs> and, you, so and you well, just and so associate well, it with you know, Bruce Dickens, like the way it's delivered, right? This because like, um, Maiden, yeah, like yeah. Bon well, Scott tells stories, uh, you know, Brian Johnson tells stories in ACDC, but they're the story. When you think of them telling a story, it's like you're sitting at a stool at a bar and you're drinking next to somebody and they're, right. and they're telling you this story that happened last Thursday night. When I think of Iron Maiden, I think of like everybody gathering around and hearing Almost like you know Gandalf telling a story <laughs> to the hobbits, right? Of well, like and also this... guys like Bonska aren't literally telling you a story that already exists. Sure, they're not. They're not retelling a work of literature or a movie or something right. like that, which Maiden do a lot. You know, most famously again in *Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner*, which is a poem for heaven's sake. <laughs> and know? it's that combination of Bruce as this narrator and then the music, which sounds like no one else sounds. That yep. when you put them together, it is like you are opening an old book and sitting down and being entertained by this story, even if the subject matter of that story might be silly sometimes or might be just completely far out, whatever. It's like that's what that's how I think of Iron Maiden. 
And I think as I look back at their history, like this is the song that I'm like, yep, that's where, that's where I see that all come together. Yeah, well, it's Harris's prog tendencies uh, in yeah. the music. I think that sort of, you know, you wouldn't get a song like Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner or this without those, uh, you know, prog leanings. Um, but yeah, it is, you know, they absolutely are, as you say, a storytelling band. And also you mentioned, you know, even if the subject matter is sometimes silly, I, uh, one of the other things that makes Maiden stand out from a lot of uh, metal and rock bands is that they are kind of like, you get something like Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which is obviously a very, very sort of takes itself quite seriously and quite a sort of pompous song in some ways. But they are also not afraid to do things that are frankly just silly, like yep. having a giant Eddie walk across the stage, you know, a guy on stilts with flames coming out of his eyes or something. Um, or doing things like, you know, songs like Big Horror and writing songs about Hammer Horror movies. and You know, they're... Well, even never, the Charlotte the Harlot, you know. Charlotte, oh God, the Charlotte you know, Harlot so. stuff, yeah. They've never been afraid of being a bit silly at times uh be just because it's fun you know and right. sort of they don't deny these things are fun yes they may be i saw i saw somebody in a piece discuss uh describe steve harris's tastes as boy's own adventure taste yeah and I, that's exactly it you know for he sure. is he is writing for teenage boys i don't think there's any ever been any but that's the that. thing is like this band is giving you something in a way that you cannot get from any other band in the way yep. that this band gives it to you. And that to me is, is proof of one of the reasons why they have such staying power is yep. that you can put them up with like, how are they different from Judas priest? Right. How are they different from these other new wave of British heavy metal bands? Like that they're, they're just different. They're different than all of them. They are. And uh, talking about getting back to this song in particular, talking about sort of, you know, cementing things. I wonder, and again, this is something where, I've I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but maybe listeners can correct me. I wonder if this is the song that popularized the idea of doing a semi-acoustic verse and then an electrified chorus. Yeah, because well, and how brave is... is it to slow things down? Yeah, after on such that first an album track. that your fans have been waiting for, and there's so much pressure on this album, and you come out at first and you say, "Dude, okay, settle down. Where everything's cool." You know, we're we're still the same band that you knew, but we've got, you know, some new elements and then you slow it down on the second song. Yeah. Yeah. But this is again 1982, pretty early in metal's life. Uh you know, and this album again as we've said was enormously popular. Yeah. And it just makes me think like, huh, I wonder if this is the song that basically leads to things like Fade to Black. You know? Right. Because yeah. uh, I mean, especially the intro of this, I could really imagine Kirk's solo on Fade to Black coming out of this intro, you know? It um, does hammer home the idea that you can you, you can be slow and heavy. I mean, Black Sabbath did that too, but that you can be slow and heavy. That that heavy means different things, you know? Yeah. And and certainly the tone of this song is very heavy. And very, very somber, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and man, you feel that. And that's the thing. That's the storytelling quality that I just love about that is it's... it's uh, it just all works together so well. It does. Um, one of the, the one knock I have against this song, and this is you know this is one of the reasons why I like Maiden well enough, but they're not one of my favorite bands. Is if you listen to the chords in the instrumental section here towards the end of the song, they are really the chord structure is really simple and basic. Um, and you know if I've ever had a sort of knock against Maiden, it's it's that Harris 
almost never surprises you with his chord choices. I won't say never, but almost never. If you're yeah. a seasoned listener of rock music, you can almost predict where he's going to go to resolve a chord sequence. There's no dissonance. Everything is resolved. You know, there are very rarely genuine shocks and surprises. But that's also, I'm sure, one of the reasons why they're so popular. Yeah. Because it's, uh, and I don't want to say easy listening, that's that's unfair, but it's that whole thing of, like, they are easily digestible. Does that, right. does that make well, sense? I think they, if you love them, they give you what you want. They give right, you like, what like you want. Like Motorhead, yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? Exactly. Perfect example. Like ACDC, right? And and not yeah. that not that they uh I don't want to say are as simple as those or as straightforward as those bands, but yeah, even though there are these prog elements and even though the musicianship is off the charts with this band, there is still this structure that they play within. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, self-imposed sort of uh structures and limitations. Because you know de- definitions of what is Iron Maiden, right? Like um, we're gonna we're gonna experiment here, but we're still Iron Maiden. Yeah, it's almost exactly. like they're like every song that says that to you. Yeah, yeah, including. All right, let's move on to track three, "The Prisoner." the song man like just the obviously the the television series the prisoner that you get the intro from yeah that laugh is just so malevolent (laughs) you know and it's so like it's such a full body like malevolent evil laugh of in the face of someone who is trying to assert their independence and just uh i just love that as an opening and and also this song what a what a soaring chorus like again, which Iron Maiden is really known for, but I think it's such a good fusion of songs one and two as yep. we move into song three. You know, this is where it's like, and the the note I made is that because you can write this about a lot of Iron Maiden songs that it starts out slow and it picks up tempo a minute and a half in or a minute and fifteen seconds in. But I kind of love that about Maiden. It's like putting on your pants one leg at a time. <laughs> like they give you, they give you enough time to appreciate each piece of the composition before it starts to gallop. Right. And I really enjoy that about me. Like by the time it picks up tempo, you know, you've already lived with the song for a little bit. It's just, it's in some ways predictable. 
In some ways, it fits within those parameters that we just talked about, but I also kind of love them for that. Yeah. I I, uh, I mean, I like this one. I'm a big fan of the TV show, which helps. Um, but I also like this one musically because it's got that chunk-a-chunk thing yeah. in the guitars and then pause and let the drums carry it for a while. And I'm a sucker for that. I've mentioned that before on tracks we've on albums we've listened to. Uh, there's something about that style of, uh, of, of song that almost always grabs me. So it's got that going for it as well. It is a bit long, this yeah. track. But Five you're and right. And a half it's, minutes, yeah. But it's such a great chorus. That whole, you know, when he gets to "Not a Prisoner, I'm a Free Man," and the whole band, it feels like the whole band is just running from that point. They're like, yeah, you know, all the lights come out and the fireworks go off, and it's just, as you say, it soars. It's a really, really great. Chorus. And this was the first song that also. Uh, to, first of all, you mentioned the drums, and I feel like this is the first song in the album where the drums are really on display. Yeah. Um, in a way that they're not in the first two songs, but also this was the song where it really clicked in my brain that Harris goes over the guitar line with his bass in the same way that Vinny Apice goes over guitars and vocals with his drums, which is just such a different approach from most bass players who go under everything. He goes over it. And it's just like it, it obviously being the leader of the band and being the person who's writing the songs and things like that, you you kind of expect that in one way, but from a musical standpoint, like he's always on top of the guitar line as opposed to underneath it, which is just so interesting to listen to. And this was the song. Um, and I think particularly during the chorus where you can really kind of feel that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree. Absolutely. Um, and again, you know, a, fi- a fictional, an existing fictional thing, sure. turning it into a song. And this one, they even do twice. You know, the next album's got another song about the prisoner. Is it Back in the Village, I think it's called. Yeah. You know, which is the same same thing. It's just another song about the same thing. <laughs> and what's cool about that, though, is that when a band, like, I'm sure we can all have examples, and maybe in the, in the you know, notes for this episode or, or the Facebook thing, people can chime in about that. But um, songs from bands that introduced you to a book or song from, oh, yeah, songs yeah, yeah. from bands that led you to go check out a movie or you know or a TV show or 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 anything like that where you know your first introduction to something was in a song and then you went and discovered what it was that inspired my first introduction to Judge Dredd was I am the law right you well, know what and, i mean and how many how many and it's again you know most of our listeners i think are old enough to you know, relate to this, but for any younger listeners out there, you've got to remember that all of this is done in days before widespread internet, before the World Wide Web was even invented, before long before things like Wikipedia and YouTube. You didn't, this stuff wasn't as easily available. Uh, And I certainly was introduced to, yes, some, you know, classic pieces of literature and poetry and stuff like that through references made by bands that I liked in songs, no question. Um, and I, I often wonder how many people went out and tried to read the rhyme of the ancient mariner because of Iron Maiden. Sure. And <laughs> how not, cool is that? Like, it's, because it's it flies cool. in the face of this notion that heavy metal isn't worth anything, it's, you know, or that. it's brainless. Yeah. Yes. yes. And so you have like, th- this is another thing that you always associate with Iron Maiden. It's the thinking man's band. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a band that makes you think about stuff. It's a band that. Um, that get your imagination sort of soaring. And I, I just, I love that. And you're absolutely right. Like in, in those days, we would listen to music 
and we would delve into the things that inspired the music that we loved. And it yeah. might have been our first introduction to something. And, I, and Judge Dredd is a, is a classic example for me. I'm, I'm like, who the hell is Judge? Who is Judge Dredd? And, <laughs> you know, and so that is kind of awesome. It absolutely is. Um, so uh, talking of um, songs that are, of you know, that, that subject matters that they repeatedly go back to. So track four is 22 Acacia Avenue. And this is part two of Adrian Smith's Charlotte the Harlot saga. <laughs> right. The, fir- the third being, uh, well, From Here to Eternity is, is uh, one that is alluded to as p- uh, potentially a fourth one, but Hooks in You is the other one that, that sort of yes. uh, completes yeah. the Charlotte the Harlot story. Um, sh- her being a hooker that you can meet on 22 Acacia Avenue. And this song kind of talks about her, what her life is like on the job. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a bit of a weird one because again, you've got to take it in context and sort of you know reading these lyrics now. You you could certainly is, read these lyrics now and be like, what are they advocating yeah, for? I don't like that. Uh, it's kind of you know some of them are a bit uncomfortable, including even the end, which is uh, you know sort of white knight stuff of like you know I'm going to swoop in and rescue you from a, a life yeah. of depravity on the streets and stuff it's lyrically it is very very dodgy um, but it's a good musically it's a great track very well performed it is a bit of an odd way to end side one because this was the last track on side one of the vinyl yeah. album bit of an odd one to end in the it's I think it's the second longest track on the album or something yeah, it's six and a half minutes, so it is right behind um, the last song on the album, Hall- Hall- right, Hall- yeah. Name. Uh You know, so it's a really long track. It's, yes, a strange subject matter. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, yeah, just... Yeah, a, a little less dodgy when you realize that it's part of an overall story that they're telling, but certainly taken on its own and just looking at the lyrics of the song, definitely um, yeah, questionable. Yeah, yeah. Um, the best part, however, for me, the really catchy part, is when Bruce's vocals sync up with the guitar melody during that, that mi- those yes. middle verses. The guitar work is amazing it on is, this well, song. And it was, you know, again, co-written by Adrian Smith. Uh, I suspect probably yep. largely written by Adrian Smith because a lot of this song is basically a way for Adrian to show off his his guitar. Work. Sure, <laughs> I think there's like two solos yep. in this song and lots of different you know, chords and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's uh, you know chord structures and stuff. It's uh, it is basically a showcase for the guitar, but a very good one, you know, at that. Yep. Um, so that's the end of side one. Like again, back in the day, kids, you know, get the vinyl, turn the vinyl over, and. Track one on side two. Holy cow, it's the number of the beast. (laughs) 
With an introduction by a guy by the name of Barry Clayton, who passed away in 2011, who I believe was an actor, because yes. I forget who they wanted to get. Do you remember who it was Vin- that they wanted to get? It was Vincent it was Price, Vincent right? Price yeah. yeah, but Vincent Price wanted £25,000 yeah. fee. <laughs> so they got <laughs> Which, a guy that did not like heavy metal at all to do the intro for Number of the Beast, but what a memorable oh, it's introduction, it, man. Yeah, well, and they still use that, don't they? They still, when they perform this track live, yes. I believe they still use his spoken word intro as the lead-in and uh influenced by the damien the omen 2 which is about you know the antichrist yep. and uh and he has defended this song in the past saying it's not about devil worship you know it, it, well this is the like song that. That, this and the album cover is what caused all the controversy sure. when they went over to the states because you know as unfortunately so often happens people don't actually look beyond the surface level and assume that therefore the band must all be satanists uh, but the thing is and- like if you listen to this album and you or you didn't listen to this album if you were going to listen to this album for the first time and you think uh okay iron maiden number of the beast would you ever in your wildest dreams think that this is the first song on the second side of the album like if someone just said where do you think this song falls on the album oh you it's got to be song it to be one it's yeah. got to be song two uh, it's certainly on the first side. It's not the first song on the second side of the album. No way. Well, but that wasn't so unusual back in the day. And I, I, I don't know, but I've long suspected that the idea is that you put the title track as the first track on side two as a way of effectively pulling the listener through side one. Yeah. So it allows you to put some good tracks, obviously, but also maybe a bit of filler on side one. But you keep listening because you've got the anticipation that all oh, the title track is, you know, first track and side two. And again, kids back in the day, we used to, you know, you pretty much listened to an album all the way through. You yes, you did. Skip around between tracks. So no, it's a some way of us of, still listen to all of our albums like right. that. Right. But it's a way of making you not lose attention, if you like, during what might be some filler tracks towards the end of side one, because you have the anticipation of flipping it over and listening to the title track as the first track of side two. I don't know if that's the actual, if there was even that much thought behind it, but that's what I've long suspected because it wasn't unusual to put the title track as the first track on side two. Um, well, in one way or the other, it kicks off what could be argued as one of the greatest second sides oh, of an yeah. album 
in history. I mean, I think of albums like Holy Diver, I think of uh, which we did an episode about High and Dry is another album that I think has an amazing second half. This, the, um, the second half of this album is incredible. It really is. And yeah, Number of the Beast is just, but you know, what a way to kick it off. Just an amazing song, the propulsive drive of that main riff. That, just the galloping, you know, there's, there's that, yeah. that, that attack of Iron Maiden that you, is so iconic for them when you think of like, what does Iron Maiden sound like? This is such a big part of their sound that just sort of charging forward, um, almost relentless attack with Bruce Dickinson's vocals over the top of it. And just, uh, yeah. Man, well, it all comes together. Th- this is, I mean, to me, this is the track that you, you know, we've talked about this before with other bands. This is the track you play to people who say, play me one Iron Maiden song. <laughs> yes, that tells I totally me agree, dude. What, that tells me what this band sound like. This is the track you play because it's got yep. everything. It's got the pompous spoken word intro by an actor. For sure. You know, it's got the slow bits. Uh, or not slow, if you, but you know, slightly sort of subdued, quiet bits. It's got the big da 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 intro yep. bit. It's got it's got the galloping bass. It's got the massive chorus. It's got everything that you need to make an Iron Maiden song. It is right. almost the perfect Iron Maiden song. Right. It starts small. It gets epic. It has soaring parts. It has charging parts. Like you're absolutely right. It's the total package. Yeah. Um, here's just from a sort of music nerd point of view. Here is something that you might not consciously notice about this song. Uh, I mentioned the sort of how the, the main riff is kind of, you know, propulsive and really drives you through. One of the ways it does that, and I love this because there's no need to do this other than it works, if you get what I mean. And that is the fourth snare drum in each line of the verse is not on the beat. It's just a ahead of the beat by maybe a quarter yeah, or half and beat it pulls early. you forward and it immediately makes those sung verse lines just more interesting because bruce does not follow it with his vocals he sings to a normal rhythm but the drums yeah are kind of like slightly off and it just pulls you through it's a bit like do you remember uh i think you linked to this on the facebook page somebody talking about lars's drumming and yes, how it, about often, how people like to bag on him and how much like Ringo Starr, he, he deserves a lot more credit. Right, right. And one of the things they pointed to was that he often will hit symbols on the second or third bar of a line rather than at the end, like, you know, you would traditionally expect. And yeah. that creates this sort of interest and it makes their uh, verse lines unusual and just sort of, you know, brings an extra bit of swing and funk if you like to metallica songs that's kind of what this does here obviously not quite to such the extent because it's not a symbol it's just a snare hit but because you're so used to hearing the doom doom you know snares always on the beat to have one that goes doom suddenly goes whoa what 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 happened there you know you're used to the bass being the thing that pulls you forward in this band you're used to the bass leading everything and so here you're like whoa yeah. And again, you may not consciously notice it when you listen, but it is there. And, you know, subconsciously, I think it is one of the things that just drives Makes this it song stickier forward. in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and drives you onto the next line and just makes, gives it that sort of urgent feel that this song has during the, the chorus, uh, the verses and the main chorus. It's, uh, yeah, it's extraordinary. Just a little thing like that that can make such a difference. Because if you didn't have that, I'm sure this song would not actually be as compelling. Uh, yeah, it's pretty much four anyway. and a half minutes of perfection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it even has a nice abrupt ending. 
<laughs> it doesn't yep. fade out. I could have lived with another chorus. My one criticism of this song is that it doesn't end on a chorus. And when you have a chorus this good, I think you could stand to do it again to finish with. Do you know what I mean? Um, but don't the best songs leave you wanting just a little bit more? Now you're quoting my own words back at me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and and then it, so it, it does end uh, eventually and goes on to... Uh, track six, Run to the Hills. I mean, another of the greatest songs of all time. Just amazing. Such I mean, uh, a very different song to Number of the Beast, obviously. Yeah. Much more sort of straight ahead rock. But my goodness, and what an intro. That classic intro. And again, the drums are slightly odd. You know, the, the open hat and the kick are slightly off the sort of way you would normally expect them in the rhythm. Um you know, I, you know, I wonder how much was Lars, because we know that Metallica were influenced by Iron Maiden. I wonder sure. how much Lars specifically was influenced by Clive Burr's drumming. I'm sure Think- there's got to be an interview out there somewhere where that comes up as a question. I might have to go and look for that, yeah, because now I'm intrigued. Um, but yeah, again, classic intro, uh, brilliant track, like great chorus, great... The storytelling. I the mean, just the Iron yeah. Maiden storytelling, just... Uh, certainly helped when the video for this came out and you have all that old footage cut into uh, the video. It's an Keaton movie, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, just again, talking about the European arrival to the new world, uh, told from different perspectives, just soaring chorus, just the, the way the screeching guitars sort of give you this sense of urgency and impending doom at the same time. Like, just... Again, it's it's you can't find fault with this. <laughs> like it, it's right. just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the the fact that the intro, which is so iconic and so memorable, you like you know everybody knows that intro, but it's only in the intro. Right. You never hear it again. They don't go back yep. to it. It's not in the bridge. They don't end with it. It's only the intro, which is and to go from that into the gallop, the transition into the galloping verse rhythm, and then never revisit it again. That's just like. Wow. 
you know, that's a re- again, a really proggy thing to do. And this is a, not a proggy track at all. This is very much, like I said, a straight ahead rock and For roll sure. track. But that is kind of a proggy thing to do, to have this whole intro that you just then don't even make reference to. Literally, not the chords, nothing about it is even referenced again in the rest of the song. Uh, and then, of course, at the end, after the solo, the you've got scream. that fantastic, yeah, bit that... Oh, yeah. Just, oh, man. And then the really scream at the end of the off. song with, you know, Dickinson just letting it rip. Yeah. It's no surprise to me that this was the first single they released featuring Dickinson as the new vocalist, because is there any, on this album, is there any better introduction to... This is what we sound like now. Did you know we've well, got a new vocalist? Exactly. And, <laughs> and look at what how it is can the, do. How is the new vocalist going to measure up to the old vocalist? And are they yeah. going to be able to do the things that the old vocalist did? And are they going to be able to, oh, okay, well, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Yep. <laughs> it's, oh, man. Yeah, I just, for, like I said, I don't think I'd ever even heard Iron Maiden, or certainly not knowingly before I heard this track. But if I had, I can't even imagine what the reaction must have been from people you know, and we know Paul Giano has his sort of rabid fanboys and people who maintain oh, sure. that those first two albums are the best. And if you believe that, that's fine. You know, everybody's entitled to their belief. But I wonder for people who liked Maiden but weren't sort of fanatic about that sort of thing, what their reaction must have been hearing Run to the Hills for the first time, going like, oh my God, who is this guy? Right. Just uh, astounding. Yeah, what a track. Um, uh, and. Then, unfortunately, into a slightly less memorable track. Yeah, track seven. I agree. Gangland. This is the only song on the album that I think doesn't measure up to the rest of the album. Like, like even 22 Acacia Avenue, I think, is miles better than this song. I mean, this yeah. is really the only song on the album to me that I'm like, oh, that's the only thing that really keeps it from being a perfect album. Um, and again, not that Gangland is bad, because this, is, to me, is, is another kind of jazzy song. The drums really sort of stand out. Um, the bass, again, you can really hear on top of the guitars here. Um, the opening I feel like is more interesting than the main rhythm riff, which is part of the problem. Right. But it, but it doesn't overall do each one of these other songs is very memorable, whether it's because of the story they're telling, whether it's because of the vocals, whether it's because of the main riff, you know, the solo, whatever, like this particular song just doesn't have a standout element that makes it memorable. And when you're surrounded by other songs that are extremely memorable, that are so good, it's yeah. tough, man. 
<laughs> yeah. You know, it's tough. But it's almost a herc it's an impossible task to have every song be hitting that bar. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly the same here. I like some of the constituent parts of this song. Uh-huh. Uh you know, the main chorus riff is interesting because it is a bit jazzy and it's kind of, you know, again, not discordant. Nothing in Maiden is ever discordant, but it is unusual. You know, it's got some like nice chord change choices. Uh and the rhythm on the main verse, which I think is a seven, eight or something, uh, you know, makes them stand out again, not something that Maiden do an awful lot of. So it's got some nice parts, but yeah, as a whole, it just doesn't. And this was the song that Clive got his credit on. And the drums are one of the stand more standout elements on the song. And so, but yeah, it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't hang with the rest of the album. Yeah. And interestingly, uh, apparently what happened the reason this is on the album is because when they released Run to the Hills as a single, back in those days, you needed a B-side. Yep. Uh, and the the choice of the B-side was either between this or Total Eclipse. And they just had to make a decision, you know, and quickly. Uh, and so they said, okay, well, let's put Total Eclipse on the B-side, Gangland on the album. It's got to be one or the other. Um, yep. And apparently Steve Harris has regretted that decision ever since. Yeah. And wishes that they'd done it the other round and that Total Eclipse is on the album. But I disagree because I don't think Total Eclipse is much better than Gangland, if I'm honest. It has the same problem where it's like some of the constituent parts are interesting, but it's just not overall a very interesting track. Um, Right. And and on an album of classics, it's, I mean, again. It's almost as if they could have just dropped track seven, whichever one it was going to be, you know, and gone straight into Hallowed Be The Name. But of course, the problem there is that you'd have an album that's literally only like, you know, 32 minutes long or something. (laughs) Well, and and a lot of the albums in those days, I might be mistaken about this, had to hit the 40 minute mark in order to 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 chart. Yeah, yeah. And and to meet like record contract requirements as well, I believe. Well, I think that's. Yeah, right. But I think those requirements were partly because of... Uh, because of the charting thing. Right, right. If you yeah. weren't a, over a certain length, you wouldn't be recognized for the official charts. And yeah. again, I don't know how much inf- how much importance the charts have now. I really don't. I mean, don't. this song doesn't derail um, the album and it doesn't no. drag the album down. It just doesn't rise to the highs that most of the rest of the songs on this album rise to. Right. As you said, it's not a bad song. And I don't think Maiden are capable of making a bad song. But it, yeah, it's when it's surrounded by such titans, <laughs> it right. just unfortunately falls a bit short. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, I don't know how important the charts are now, but back then, the Super charts important. were, were so important for both singles and albums. They were, yeah, you know, you might, well, the only reason that I heard Run to the Hills was because it was in the top 10 in the UK charts. That's right. why it was played on top of the pops. If that hadn't been the case, I would And on the radio, right? It. I mean, if you yeah. were going to hear songs on the radio, you were going to hear the songs that were charting. And so... Right, well, and specifically, uh, the way the top 40... UK BBC Radio 1 chart show used to work. Again, this may not be the case now, but the way it used to work was uh, they would play select tracks throughout the top 40. Basically, if you were going up in the charts, they would play you. But if you were on the way down or if you were a non-mover, it was 50-50 whether or not your track would get played according to, you know, sort of song length and the slots they had to fill. But if you were in the top 10, I think it was, you would get played. Even if you were on the way down. Even if you'd been number one last week and now you were number seven, you would still get played. They played every track in the top 10. So it was a really big deal. And again, this is, you know, although this was the radio, not the TV, uh, you know, younger listeners may not understand that literally millions of people listened to this radio program every single week. 
Yep. Uh, you know, it was a huge, huge influence on right. It's almost today. It's almost even uh, inconceivable how we consumed music back in the and how right. like how our <laughs> yeah. access to music was restricted back in the day. Like the and how important yeah. the radio and our local music store were, and how important magazines were back in the day. Like oh, it's yeah. just uh, which which again, yeah. The, one of the great things about doing the show is we get to relive that and remember. Uh, in a way, how awesome that was, you know, because it wasn't information overload, it was information scarcity. And so you took every morsel and every crumb of an article or a mention or a news bite or something a DJ said on the radio about a band that was in the studio that was working on an album, like every piece of information was treasure. Yep, absolutely. But at the same time, you know, it also makes us realize how lucky we are to live in a world now where we have such almost unfettered access to so much great music. Uh, right. There are bands know. we would never, ever, ever discover. Yeah, exactly. And information yep. about those bands. Yeah. You know, it's so easy to find stuff out about bands now. It really wasn't back in the eighties. No, hell no. You know, unless they were interviewed in the music press or something, you just wouldn't know anything about them other and than the funny what thing was, was in the like, music. Your news about a particular band would often like when I went to school, because I wasn't the biggest Iron Maiden fan, I went to the Iron Maiden fan for news right. about that band. <laughs> yes, yes. There was the Iron Maiden kid that I went to school with who had the number of the beast patch on the back of their jacket. Might be a member of the fan club, that sort of and thing. And if yeah. I wanted to know when they were coming around or when the new album was coming out or when the new song was debut, I would go to that kid. Yep. You know? Yep. And so it uh, we all had roles to play for the favorite bands that we like. We became the town crier for the band that we liked. And that's yep. the way it worked because we all had our own favorite bands. Yep. I remember when I was in high school, if anybody wanted to know, not that anybody did, but if anybody wanted to know anything, well, this did happen once actually with Motorhead, but if anybody wanted to know anything about either Motorhead, Genesis, Sisters of Mercy, or REM, basically, it, yep. I was the guy they came to. Those were, you know, I was known as like the uber fan of those bands. Uh, and like I say, not that it ever did, except for, I remember it happening with Motorhead once. Uh but I was the was, ACDC kid when most people had right. moved beyond ACDC. You know, I was the kid who who had the Who Made Who patch on the back of their jacket, and uh, and then, and then obviously Megadeth later on. But yeah, it was uh, it, that information scarcity created like these roles for us. Now that we've said that, I remember a classmate of mine actually telling me about um, Genesis's album Invisible Touch, which I knew was coming out. But what I didn't know was that they did a Radio 1. This is how, you, again, you've got to remember, Genesis were a big band back in the day. There was a Radio 1 two-hour special uh, one evening of the week with like one of their top DJs basically interviewing the band about the album and playing the entire album track by track as they discussed it. Um, and I didn't know about this. And I remember one of my classmates telling me, I think the day before or maybe even on the day you know, before the evening, uh, that it was being broadcast saying, are you going to listen to that Genesis show that's coming on the radio tonight? And I'm like, what, what, what? And he he just assumed that I would know about sure. it because I was the Genesis fan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't listen to the radio as much as him, clearly, so I didn't know about it. But I did. I went home and I recorded onto audio cassette <laughs> that show. Oh, those were the days, yeah. And I listened back to that audio cassette so many times of these. I mean, I can literally still recall segments of the conversation 
from that interview now, like 30 years on or whatever. <laughs> For sure. Uh, anyway, sorry. <clears throat> Old man digression. Uh, Trip down memory aside. lane. Indeed. So, all right, close out the album. Track eight, final track, Hallowed Be Thy Name. Good Lord. What a great <laughs> intro. Like, again, much like Children of the Damned, yep. you've got that very somber, sort of uh, just heavy emotionally intro. And then when he's singing Running Low, uh, and yeah. the guitars come in, dude, so freaking good. The harmonizing guitars, like, ju- what a vintage Iron Maiden this is another Epic song track, that yeah. has everything in it. It has everything that you love about Iron Maiden is in one song. Like well, if you only got to choose a handful of songs that you get to keep from Iron Maiden, like this just has everything. Well, the one thing it doesn't have, uh, and that's sort of my one knock on this song is that it doesn't have a big chorus. Yeah. It's not, there's, there's nowhere in it where you can point to it and go, Oh, you can really sing along with that chorus. Uh, which is my one knock against it. But I agree, in all other respects, this is a classic, epic main track. That sustained low note oh, just so seems good. to go on forever. Again, like really showing off Bruce's vocal skills. Just uh, amazing. This is the longest track on the album. The last Seven track. minutes and eight seconds. Seven minutes long. It's, yeah, just uh, crazy. Um, but it doesn't, never feels wasted. Like no. you, it's just. Uh, well, it takes which, a minute and a half to actually get to the sort yes. of sped up bit, doesn't it? You know? Yeah. It's almost like there's a 90 second intro before a five and a half minute track uh, or four and a half minute track. No, five and a half. Um, uh, but one of the interesting bits for me musically is about five plus minutes in where you get these really short instrumental bars that break up the regular rhythm, if you know the bit I'm talking about. Yeah. And that's before it then returns back to the regular rhythm. And that's kind of, that saves the middle of the track from getting a bit repetitive and self-indulgent for me. That comes along at just the right time to maintain interest. Which interestingly, as you talked about before, you know, is not something that, would normally happen because they don't surprise you a lot right. with 
where they go. So, but when they do, like in this case, it kind of keeps the track from getting stale. Yes, yes. And then, of course, it does end with, you know, Bruce screaming, yeah, 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 hallowed be yeah. your name and all that. So it does end in that suitably operatic style. And I'm amazed that that's the first time that any of us, either of us, have used the word operatic in this entire episode. <laughs> that, yeah, that was. Congratulations <laughs> to us. If that was on your bingo card, then you're kind of, maybe you completed your, your bingo, but if not, you've right, been waiting. But, but every other time I hear people talking about Iron Maiden, the word operatic comes out within like three minutes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is it's a great track to end on uh, and another classic Maiden track. And Man. I I think it fulfills, you know, your criteria of does it make you want to flip the album over oh, and start hell all over again? Yes. Yeah. And that's exactly what I did several several times this week. Um <laughs> just kept going and I listened to the whole thing again this morning. It's uh what a what a super listenable album and as I said before, Somewhere in Time will always hold a special place in my heart because it was the one that I went out and bought and I had spent more time with. But after spending a lot of time with this album, like to me, this is, this is my favorite of their albums. Um, because you know, outside of Gangland, like it's such a complete album. It really is. It's not difficult to see why it was so successful. Uh, no, uh, not you know, at all. And as we've said, so influential, it really was you, uh, you know, you go and ask any metal band that started in the eighties, basically. Uh, and even some that started in the 90s, and they will tell you just how influential Iron Maiden were. Even bands as diverse as, I mean, Metallica, obviously, everybody knows that, but also more modern bands like Machine Head and Trivium will quite happily cite Iron Maiden as big influences on them. And you yeah. wouldn't, if you listen to those bands, you wouldn't think, oh, yes, I can see the Iron Maiden influence there. <laughs> You know, right. not, musically, you wouldn't see it at all, but they have had such an influence. And of course, on power metal and, you know, the European, the rise of bands like Halloween and stuff, as we talked about, and just had such an influence on the development and direction, even of older bands who have then sort of, you know, maybe formed a new band or a side project or something. They right. came along at just the right time with what was at the time something very new, uh, and had such an impact that it's it's almost impossible to overstate their influence. The legendary status of this band and this album cannot be overstated. I mean, they it's it, it's well earned. It is yeah. well earned. And you know, we mentioned about seeing them live, and and for the bands that I have seen, I kind of like to end the discussion with talking about when I've seen them. So I saw Iron Maiden for the first time in 2005. Well, they'd been around for decades by the time that I actually saw them for the first time on Ozfest. Um, and on that particular tour, they played three songs from this album. They played Run to the Hills, Number of the Beast, and Hallowed Be Thy Name, which, if you're going to pick three songs, pretty awesome. Uh, yep. And then I saw them 12 years later, this past summer, uh, almost to the day uh, from the the time that I saw them in 2005. And they only played two songs. They played Children of the Damned, and they played Number of the Beast uh, as part of their encore for that but in both cases i was blown away at how amazing they sound live and how especially this time how energetic bruce dickinson still is and what a great show they still put on this is a band that even if maiden is one of those bands as you listen to this episode where you're like ah they've never really been one of my favorites or i you know i never really got super into maiden if you have not seen them and you get the chance to go see them you owe it to yourself to go see these guys live yeah, no question. Yeah, because, I mean, that's as I say, that's my thing. I'm not a massive Maiden fan. I like them just fine, but I've never been a huge fan. Uh, 
you know, sort of big fanatic style fan, but I, you know, admire and appreciate them. But also, yeah, I will say they are one of the best live bands you will ever see. I've seen them, I think, twice. It was a long time ago. <laughs> I genuinely, my memory is so bad. I, you know, I, half the bands that I've seen, I'm like, have I seen them live? I know I've seen them live at least once because, as yeah. I say, I went to Bruce's farewell tour at the NEC Arena um in whenever that would have been 93 94 something like that um uh and i think i saw them again after bruce rejoined but i can't remember where <laughs> i can't i can't be exact but yeah i either way just phenomenal live um i mean live after death okay you know they were what five six albums in yeah but there were only five or six albums in and this was back in the days when bands pretty much released an album every year. So they had only been a band for about six or maybe seven years when they recorded Live After Death. And yet, and also, you know, you can bet when the album says no overdubs, that Steve Harris is not going to cheat and put overdubs on there anyway. You know, that album is live. Yes, they yeah. take it. That I know that it's taken from two different shows. They're going to pick the best performance from each one. But nevertheless, that is genuinely live. That is fucking amazing. It you is know, absolutely one hundred percent. There are tracks on that album where I genuinely prefer listening to the live after death version to the studio version. Um, it's such a great album, and so yeah, you really—if you've never seen them live and you get the chance—you really, really shouldn't. It may cost you quite a bit of money uh, because obviously they're a very in-demand band live, but there's a reason for that. That's why because they are so so good. Yeah, I totally agree. Fantastic album from a fantastic band who is amazing live. Absolutely. All right. So uh, let us close out with the usual. Um, I will say, uh, as always, thank you to everyone for listening. If you enjoy the show, please remember to spread the word. Tell your friends. Join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Uh, rate us on iTunes and Google Play podcasts if you can. And of course, you can uh, become a patron and support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out. And we will, uh, one thing I didn't mention earlier, we will, we've actually already chosen we weren't going to tell you this, and I'm not going to be specific, but I'll tell you that Brian and I have actually already chosen a revisit album, uh, if you like, uh, that we are going to do uh, later in the probably as the bonus episode for this volume. Yeah. Um, so, and we'll talk more about that when we do it. So, the whole uh, going back and you know revisiting a band that we've done before, we'll start that with volume four when we get to volume four, which will be yep. in just a couple of episodes time anyway. Uh, and that's when we'll start doing that for patrons. Uh, the um, backstage pass, uh, I don't know when we'll start doing that. As I say, we'll do it occasionally, but we will basically select patrons at random, probably using random.org from the patron list. And then we're, you know, cause you you have to give us an email when you uh, sign up at Patreon, obviously. And we'll just make sure that your email that you signed up with is real because <laughs> we will use that email yep. to contact you and uh, yeah and we'll invite you on and maybe we'll do one of those in the next month or so uh, we'll see you know we'll see what kind of uh, time and schedule we can get yep uh yeah so that's it for now and so uh, on to that's the end of episode 9 track 9 of this volume so Brian what is our homework for the next episode well our homework might be a little divisive it is an album uh, from 2015, so we're jumping ahead in time quite a bit, and we are going to be talking about the seventh album from Lamb of God, Sturm und Drang. Oh, wow. Yes. 
a lot of people, I really hemmed and hawed between this or Ashes of the Wake for Lamb of God, but I have really been loving this album lately. And so, uh, and I think it's more diverse than some of their other stuff. So that could be seen as a good thing or a really bad thing. I know people have strong feelings about Lamb of God. Uh, I dig them and I really liked seeing them in concert this past summer. So uh, yeah, so we're going to do Lamb of God for the next episode. Wow. I will tell you now that I do not have strong feelings about Lamb of God because I, I know them and I know who they are, but I am not very familiar with their work at all. So, uh, yeah, so that's going to be an interesting one for me. Absolutely. Look forward to that. This one has quite a story around it as well. So if you're not that familiar with Lamb of God, we'll have some good stuff to talk about for that particular episode. Fantastic. All right. Well, everyone keep thrashing and we will see you then. Take care. Take care.